Yo, guys and gals. Want to give a mighty big shout out tonight to Jump for the Rose. Jump for the Rose is run by a dear friend of mine, a lady named Marion Sparks. Marion is a wonderful woman. You'll see very few people give back the way Marion is given back. She gives back to her sport. She gives back to a cause she firmly believes in, and I believe in as well. I met Marion as a skydiver. She uh, learned some individual strength through skydiving, eventually uh, led through a, a divorce, a very respectful, very good divorce. People are all okay, but lost her health insurance because of that. Uh, the Rose is a nonprofit organization who helps cure women of breast cancer. A lot, a lot of companies, a lot of nonprofits do research. That is great. We need that. Uh, saving the future is awesome. Saving today is even more important at times. And Marianne was able to get the support she needed from the Rose. So the Rose has a very near and dear place to my heart. Jump for the Rose is run by Marianne and a group of wonderful ladies. Everything they raise is donated to their cause. Mm, I say everything. Every now and then they occur an, occur an expense. But they do everything as minimal price as they can. They are all volunteers. They just have to pay for some of the travel or expenses that the company has. Um, and even then, a lot of that is out of pocket or donated by other people. So check them out, jumpfortherose.org. If you go to smile.amazon.com, you can choose your charity of choice. And if you have another charity, hell yes, man. But choose Jump for the Rose as your charity. That's the way I want you to go. That's the way we're going to push you. You're supporting skydivers. You're supporting breast cancer. You're supporting boobies. You're kind of like a bra. Man, like or uh, pick that charity, and it costs you nothing. It costs a charity nothing. It doesn't change the fee on Amazon. I've checked. I've tried. All they do is they give a very small percentage to your nonprofit, and that adds up over time. So I do all my shopping on smile.amazon.com. I do not use the app on my phone because it does not recognize what contribution or what charity I'm contributing to. I must use smile.amazon.com on my phone. So I just save that like it's an app. It works perfect. It works fine. I've gotten to the point where I don't even realize the app exists. I have it buried on my phone somewhere. Check out Jump for the Rose. Donate some money. Uh, support these wonderful ladies. Support a great cause. Tonight's Gravity Lab Radio is brought to you by the Rating Center. The Rating Center, we are a full-time rating school. We are based out of Skydive Spaceland Houston with campuses in Dallas and San Marcos. We are looking to expand and move in the future. We are going to get bigger. We're going to get better. Uh, by bigger, we really want to have a large impact on the sport. Giving back to the sport that's given us our passion and given us our life has meant a lot. I say us. I do own the, the Rating Center, and I have a really wonderful crew that works with me. Our goal of giving back, the bigger we are, the more we can do, the more we can help other jumpers enjoy the sport the way we have. So uh, check us out, theratingcenter.com. You're looking for coach courses, canopy courses, tandem courses, AFF instructor courses, or just straight up coaching. Hit us up. We'll help you out. Uh, we are, again, looking to expand, so you'll maybe see us at other drop zones near you. Uh, and we are looking at growing. So if you are an examiner and you are looking to uh, join the brand, hit me up. Uh, DJ at the ratingscenter.com. There is an S on ratings. DJ at the ratingscenter.com. If you got more questions about these courses, you want to schedule anything, hit us up and let us know. Tonight's Gravity Lab Radio. Oh, yeah. Uh, the reason we are brought to you by the Rating Center is uh, Safety Day. Uh, safety Day is coming up this Saturday, March 9th, two days from now. You may have already seen Safety Day when you're listening to this ad. But uh, the Rating Center, we will broadcast it on our Facebook page. We will have Safety Day seminars there all day long. You can actually check out our Safety Day uh, schedule. It's posted somewhere around there. Tonight's uh, Gravity Lab Radio does feature J.P. Fernari. J.P. is a longtime skydiver, tons of jumps, experienced pilot as well. 
tons of flying of experience and a, a huge safety guy. JP has sat as a uh, advisor to the safety and training committee for USPA. JP has also served as a USPA re- or safety and training advisor, both uh, at large and at local drop zones. Super intelligent guy, and uh, we're gonna dive a little bit into uh, the safety day topics. We'll talk a little bit. We'll have a little bit of fun, and of course, we'll laugh and get off track. Enjoy the show, guys. I'm the target of a meat missile going 150 miles an hour plus. That got really <laughs> exciting all of a sudden. I'm doing canopy safety. Um, I drive like an Asian, so I don't know if it's the most appropriate thing ever. I'm killing it. Utah, give me two. You're listening to Gravity Lab Radio, hosted by DJ Marvin and Nicholas Lott. Produced by Justin Grubbs. Have we talked about skydiving the whole time? Gentlemen. Man, Braden redid the uh, intro, and he always sounded so laid back and casual in the first one. He sounds kind of pretentious and a, uptight a little in this bit, one. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Okay, not just me. <laughs> like, can you fucking believe who hosts this podcast? <laughs> it's these guys. These fucking pieces of shit. <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't know if I'd go that far. I, I have. A little so, aggressive. Speaking of such. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic intro. Uh-huh. It's perfectly. This is uh, Safety Day weekend coming up. Historically, nationwide, uh, United States, other countries do participate as well. Uh, the second Saturday of the month is Safety Day, where we emphasize safety. We'll talk more about uh, why and where. But uh, joining us today, really, uh, JP Finari, I couldn't think of a better guest to talk about safety. One of the more safety-minded and safety-thoughtful. Well, so much you. so, overthought sometimes in your own brain. Pro, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Dude, I couldn't think of a better person to share today's conversations with than you. So how you been? Well, you. Not too bad. Hanging in there. Yeah. Dealing with these clouds. Yeah. You are a pilot for Skydive Spaceland. I am. And really know you're a pilot for Desert Sands. Well, Desert Sands is our aircraft company, yeah. And I say that because you spent the last season in Orange? Yes, April to uh, the end of November in Orange, taking care of one of our contracts out there. I'll be going back out there uh, for a few months this year as well. So i got to figure something out. Yes. Where's Orange? Orange, Virginia is... Easiest to describe it is people tend to know where Charlottesville is, and it's about 45 minutes to the northeast of Charlottesville. Charlottesville? Virginia. Sorry. Okay. Don't know where Charlottesville, Virginia is. Uh, It's an hour outside of Washington, D.C., just a little bit to the southwest of D.C. Okay. I'm with you now. That's Orange. Uh, Charlottesville is a little further. Okay. I've uh, I've heard the name Orange. I've known it for many yep. years because of skydiving. I've honestly never known outside. It's Virginia, I think. Yep, Virginia. It's one of the uh, oldest, uh, uh, one of the few skydiving clubs still left. They are they do operate at a club at a club level with the uh, board of directors and less focus on profit, more on on just being a fun drop zone. And they're fantastic in that respect. Side tracks are really good for us, yeah. man. A club. Uh, most drop zones I go to are commercial operation. Yep. Explain the difference between the two. Just uh, I, th- I think the focus. Uh, um, they're they tend to they have a board of directors. They have their their vested membership votes for the board of directors. So it's really the the consumer that controls the direction of the drop zone. If you think of it that way, not that that doesn't happen in a commercial enterprise, but the I think the controlling interest is a little different. Whereas in a commercial opera uh, operation, the uh, the tandems and the the student side tends to control the house as much as the fun jumpers. So, kind of like the Green Bay Packers. The the easy way to say it is they throw three of the most kick-ass boogies I've ever seen a drop zone throw every year. 
I've constantly heard nothing but good things yeah. coming out of there. I've, I've heard a lot of respectful, very nice yeah. things. Met a lot of good people out of Orange. What's their tandem business like at a at a club versus a commercial they, drop zone? They do a fair bit. Um, you know, if if I were to make comparisons, uh, their balance uh, of of marketing and importance of tandems uh, seems to be lesser than I'd see out of a commercial drop zone. But they still do a fantastic job at it, and they still want to turn those people into uh, students and their next club members. But their overriding um, goal seems to be to just have fun. Do you Um, think they have higher student retention because of that? Than many drop zones, I think it's about on par. Uh, as most drop zones, I think uh, our organization, the Spaceline organization, has some some incredible numbers. But it's because of our program and the way we focus on treating everybody like a student. And as far as prices go for an experienced jumper, am I paying the same for a, a lift ticket generally at a at a club as I am a, a commercial yeah. drop zone? Yeah, uh, the 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 price around the nation, as far as I've seen, is is pretty similar within a few dollars. Somewhere uh, between twenty five and thirty bucks. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember exactly what theirs is out there, but. Justin, you have to move Mario off the fucking <laughs> screen, man. It's not my fault. DQ busted it. I could, I could I almost laughed out loud. When Absolutely. I saw it. Then I mustache you about this. Mustache. Uh, it's you. a me, JP. Well, uh, that's a handsome fucking mustache, sir. Well, it was pre-existing with the beard, uh, mm-hmm. but it came into its own life I can't at about get off the uh, seven. I don't know, maybe seven. Seven o five, Tuesday morning. Oh, okay. I literally had to shave it off in a hurry because I uh, I discovered that I was not going to be allowed into the activity I had planned for Tuesday with a full beard. So tell me about this activity on Tuesday. So I was uh, invited by uh, one Mustache of rides? <laughs> <laughs> precisely. Precisely. Yes. Five cents. Yes. <laughs> all, all yours. You pass up that You deal. supply the wax. Um I was invited by one of our (laughs) local jumpers, uh, Constantine, uh, who is interested in doing some high-altitude jumps and and possibly setting records uh, down the road, um, to attend a ride in the altitude chamber, the the low-pressure chamber, up in Oklahoma City at the FAA facility. It's something the FAA offers to pilots and others. uh, At no charge, you do have to register in advance, but it's, uh, it's a seminar on... Um, the effects of hypoxia, the effects of uh, drugs and alcohol on the system, um, spatial disorientation, and culminates in either a ride in something called the PROT, which is a chamber that simulates hypoxia by removing a large percentage of the oxygen from the breathing environment, or what I ended up doing, which is a chamber that actually brings the pressure down Mm. and simulates high altitudes. Um, and because we're wearing masks and, and we're in a reduced pressure environment, uh, we have to have no beard so that we get a good seal on the mask. How quickly and how high? So we did uh, three altitude runs. Uh, the, the course was all day, but I'd say the time in the chamber was probably about 90 minutes or so. We did um, a ride uh, from ambient, which they're at about 1,000 feet, to 6,000 feet and then back down just to test our ears and sinuses, make sure we weren't going to have any blockage issues. We did about a 20-minute pre-breathe of oxygen to uh, remove uh, nitrogen from our, our uh, system. Even for the six-grand run? That uh, We did the 20-minute the breathe after the six-grand run. Um, right. 
the next ride was uh, from up to 8,000 at a gradual rate and then a rapid decompress to 18,000 um, so that we would recognize the decompress and respond by putting our quick dawn masks on. And what does that feel like at that moment? It's not that great a pressure change. You feel an ear pop. Uh, it gets really cold and really loud in the chamber. Um, there's a fog that forms uh, simply because the pressure drops so quickly and the moisture precipitates out of the air very quickly, and then it dissipates really quickly. Um, and you respond so quickly to putting your mask on. Everybody had their mask on within about five seconds. Is that uh, the video you posted? Uh, somebody posted yeah, Somebody posted that, oh, that clip. Uh, you, you respond so quickly, there's really no, no time for hypoxia to set in. And then the final, uh, from 18, they then take us up with everybody breathing 100% uh, oxygen. They take us up to uh, 25,000 simulated. And then half the room uh, removes their masks. And the instructions are, they've, they've, of course, in the classroom, they've briefed us on what symptoms are. Uh, I know my symptoms. 20 years of skydiving has taught me my early onset symptoms. Um, but you're supposed to work some problems on a clipboard, uh, write your name to see how your motor skills are hanging in there. And at this moment, is half of the class babysitting the other half? Is that Half of the class is watching the other, just watching them to, to for external input as to what their symptoms are and okay. what, how they're behaving. There are two safety officers uh, in the room on auction that are watching everybody. We're also wearing pulse, pulse oximeters, so you can see your heart rate and your current saturation level. Um, and they say once you feel three symptoms, put your mask back on. Um, but I don't. I think only one or two people did. Everybody, and they they max the time. They'll leave you. They'll let you be off mask for five minutes. So I think pretty much everybody got loopy. Rode it for five minutes. Um, I know my my symptoms because I'm so sensitive to my symptoms, and I can identify my no. I I hit three symptoms in the first ninety seconds but I left my mask off for five minutes to see how bad it would get. <laughs> and how, uh, how cognizant are you of, of, of uh, how, how it continues to change? Do you, do, do you get caught up in like, oh my gosh, I feel different, or are you still able to note new things as I they show up? I think, I think after you come on auction again, you start to, to realize how compromised you were, and especially when you do a debrief afterwards. So, for example, one of the things that happens to me over time is I become more internal. Um, and to describe that a little bit, you know, I'm working the problems on the clipboard, and after a while, that's my entire world. Nothing really exists outside of it except things that I'm preconditioned for. So I was preconditioned for the, the order or instruction at the end of five minutes, okay, everybody put your mask on. So I did that without problem. But at, five, at four and a half minutes, one of the safety officers is asking me math problems and, and waving his hand like 24 inches in front of my face. And I never knew it happened. <laughs> it was afterwards, uh, you know, that I that I found out it happened. Wow. Yeah. Did they have any video of any of? Uh, we just shot video on our cell phones and and stuff like that. So there's there's some clips uh, floating out there, but uh, I don't think anybody got real detailed on it. So this is something that's I discussed a little more when we're doing high altitude jumps. Yeah. But uh, what's the benefit of knowing what your hypoxia symptoms are? You can recognize them and then you can respond to them. Uh, as somebody in the back of the airplane, you can you can let the the flight crew know you're hypoxic. Uh, if you're all using uh, oxygen uh, and you're getting the symptoms of hypoxia, you can look and see maybe your hose is kinked or maybe it's become disconnected, something like that. Um, in the pilot side of things, if I recognize severe symptoms of hypoxia or even early onset, 
I need to take measures to counteract that. We don't have oxygen, quick on oxygen masks in, in our aircraft uh, because we don't typically need them. Um, but if I had serious onset symptoms, I would, I would dissent so that I, I could stop them. How quickly did you notice those symptoms dissipating once you were back on the oxygen? Oh, after five minutes, it probably took four or five solid breaths of 100% O2 to, uh, to come back to, uh, to, I'd say, 80 90%. You, you kind of feel the silliness fading away in those moments? Yeah. I don't, uh, you know, everybody has different symptoms. So I get, I get tingly fingers. Um, I get loss of concentration. If I check my nail bed, they'll, they'll become dark. Um, um, I don't get euphoria. Some people get euphoria, and that's a very dangerous symptom because you're like, oh, everything's great. Um, but uh, I, while I don't get euphoria, I get that very internal and, and loss of ability to experience my outside environment. So um, uh, it, it, it took, yeah, probably f four or five minutes to feel 100%. Um, really interesting was after five minutes, and, and 25,000 is a pretty extreme uh, hypoxia, I think, for five minutes. Um, before we put our mask back on, they had us pick up a color wheel, which just has a bunch of segments of all sorts of different vivid colors and some symbols on it. And you're supposed to see that you're losing clarity and you're losing color vision. That's another symptom of mine if, uh, if it progresses as uh, color intensity drops off. And uh, so when they had us come back on, uh, we put our masks on, we held our breath for a moment, we stared at the color wheel, and then we started taking big gulps of, big metered gulps, you've got to breathe nice and slowly, of oxygen. And for me, it didn't, like it has before at lower levels of hypoxia, normally the colors just snap back on. In this case, the center of my vision, my field of vision, actually went dark and was obscured. But the edges, the periphery, was like looking at neon. Wow. And then after about four or five breaths, ev all the colors became vivid and the vision became clear again. So it's, uh, it's pretty dramatic. So you, you're aware through all this that you're in a pretty controlled situation. Did, did, yes. you, did you have nerves, though, at, at, at any point? It, early on, yeah. Um, I have um, a tendency towards claustrophobia. So when I first put the mask on, there was that, that minute or two of, all right, I just don't want to do this. I want to get out of here. Uh, but control it. If anybody's been scuba diving and gotten a little, uh, little excited underwater and breathing heavy and, and the, the, the emotive response is that you're just going to rush for the surface, it's kind of like that. You just kind of get on top of that anxiety beast and <laughs> push it back down. So that's what that felt like. Was there any particular reason you were doing it or just to experience it? Um, I've always wanted to experience it, and uh, Constantine had set it up and uh, thankfully invited me along. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Qu quite a few of you guys went up yeah. to us. He's got a, a whole crew that uh, that wants to push towards these higher altitude uh, jumps and records that, that they're looking at. You guys just road tripped it up there? Uh, I, uh, everybody flew up. I think uh, Scott was up there in the area for work, and Dalton, I think, drove up. Um, I flew southwest because I got all sorts of points. So it's like 11 bucks to get up there. Huh. It works out nice. Yeah. Man, I, uh, I, I want to ask more about some of those projects. We're actually talking to Constantine about coming on and, and talking about some of them. Yeah. 
But safety day is a pretty large topic, and I actually want to <laughs> dive a little bit into it. Sure. And uh, first of all, start off with the history of safety day and why it's in March. I, I want you to share a lot of these answers. Okay. Um, they listen to me enough on this show. I would have to Google the history of safety day and why it actually started, but I, I suspect the reason it's in March is because many drop zones in the northern latitudes of the United States um, shut down for the winter and just either a minimum capacity or just plain don't operate. There's plenty that shutter their doors for the winter months. And March is kind of a good time to think about getting your head wrapped around being recurrent, um, even for highly experienced people who step away for that bit of time. There's all sorts of muscle memory things that I think start to fall by the wayside, you know, because we're, we're not, we don't have recent mm -hmm. activity. So I'd say that's why it's in March. I first moved to uh, Texas in, God, 05 from Indiana, where Safety Day was a big thing. It was really the kickoff to the season. Safety Day, then maybe we get a load or two in at the end of the day if the weather's good. Uh, usually didn't happen. Uh, and I moved to Texas. I'm like, oh, Safety Day is not as important down here. It's, 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 it's important still, but it's not as big of a deal. And over time in the sport, I think I've, I've come to understand and appreciate, or at least my, my opinion is, it's more needed in the southern drop zones than it is the northern drop zone because we didn't jump at all. All we could do is every two weeks or so get together as a group and party and talk about skydiving and talk about different things and drill each other on EPs. Not every time, but there were common conversations where here it's so easy to forget about. So for sure what you said is kind of the, the way it started in, in the time frame, but if you're a jumper who's jumping year-round, it's even more important because it's easier for us to become complacent than it is for our, our brothers who don't jump year-round. Absolutely. Complacency is, is <coughs> one of the most dangerous things we have to combat in the sport. And then how much do we not jump in the winter here? It's, it's enough. Yeah. It's enough. They, uh, until my shoulder surgery, the longest I'd taken off of skydiving ever was 30 days, and it's because I went on a honeymoon. Right. And at the end of the 30 days, man, that, that first jump back on day 31, whoo! Have you taken 30 days off in the sport? Until I became a full-time pilot, I had I had the longest break I'd ever taken was 10 days, and that's because I took a cruise once. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, that feeling, you know, even going a couple months, you know, when I go off with an airplane for a while uh, and I come back, that the first couple jumps, you know, the, the nerves are back up. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, safety day happens typically the second Saturday of the month is what USPA prescribes. Uh, every drop zone does it at their own timing, their own their own needs, and for sure that ha that's got to happen. But most easies will be this Saturday, <coughs> and the topics that <coughs> the topics that we end up talking about are aircraft safety, equipment, free fall safety, canopy safety, emergency procedures. Uh, at Spaceland, we actually host these uh, at, at Dallas, uh, Dallas, 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 San Marcos, and Houston. And we have the same seminars given by various presenters, and they're 30 or 45 minutes each. So obviously, we can't do all of those tonight. But I do want to like hit on some of the key points. Oh yeah. um, the one that gets added to the beginning is fatality, and it's the only reason I have this note card now. Uh, man, I was going to ask you, Nick, how many fatalities there were last year. <laughs> well, I already know because I snuck a look at your uh, little card there. Did you notice I tried to grab it from you two or three times? Um, no, I don't think I was. I was attention. pretty nonchalant about it. Like, I'm like, nope, shit. Uh, well, that just shows how inconsiderate I am because I didn't notice that at all. Ruined my game. <laughs> but uh, I mean, when I started skydiving, thirty was always the number that uh, was in my brain. So there was an average of thirty fatalities a year. Man, I, I can't remember the numbers back in the 
late nineties to early two thousands. I'd say thirty. 30, 28. 20, 25 to 30 was a yeah. was a solid average you could count on in the United States every year. So 13, man. The numbers have historically gone down more and more. And to me, it's not interesting that 13 is a lower number. What becomes more interesting is the, uh, God dang it, I can't think of the right word for it, but the, the, the incident rate, number of ju- ju- uh, skydives per uh, fatality. And it's like one in every 250 some odd thousand skydives in a fatality. It, it is by far the safest year we've had in a long time. The thing that, to me, man, I, it's, I, I have a huge passion, and actually all, everybody sitting in this room does, a huge passion for canopy safety. And for well over 10 years, our fatality rate nationwide and worldwide was over 50%. There were years that 70 to 80% of our fatalities were under perfectly good parachutes. And this year... Did I say the? I already said the number out loud, didn't I, man? God damn it! I ruined my own game now. <laughs> Justin, uh, I was gonna say, do you know how many were under perfectly good parachutes? Now, if if you look at USPA's presentation, it's gonna say six canopy landing issues. One of them was an unintentional low turn. The other ones were spinning line twist, spot till the ground, cut away too low. Th- those aren't landing issues. Those, those are, are more. Emergency procedure issues. Yeah, man. Student landing on a building, falling off the building and, and hitting their head, that's hitting an obstacle. Yeah. Um, so not just 100% landing issues. So, but, uh, but the thing we experienced for in, in our career, the, what we saw so often, the, the push towards high-performance landings and, and just careless canopy flight seems to be resolving itself. It has, man. It's uh, 8%, 24 25% the last couple years. And these numbers have gone down, and I firmly believe they've gone down because of, of education. Oh, yeah. Something that you and I will bitch about every day of the, of the week sometimes is, man, people's heads are up their ass in their phones, not paying attention to where they're going. They ran me over in, the, in this grocery store. <coughs> but that infinite access to knowledge also has helped empower us to be safer if, if we choose to use it wisely, take it in wisely, use it wisely. And I think the sport's doing a decent job of that. I think uh, outside of canopy instruction, too, the the access and and talent level of other disciplines in skydiving have also helped because now canopy flight and small canopies aren't necessarily the only path people see to being awesome, for lack of any better word. They can be awesome flyers on a big old canopy, and that's just fine, you know, versus... I think there was a stigma that, that to be socially acceptable in the sport, you had to keep progressing to smaller and smaller parachutes, which is Thank just God ridiculous. The yeah. The tunnel saved that. Yeah, <laughs> done a lot of that. Um, we've gotten safer, there's no doubt, and I really think the skill set has allowed for it partially by what you say, partially by we become more uh, picky, you know, like these big record attempts have now become a lot more picky. And in return, and they're allowed to, they can, and it's smart that we do. Our friends are living longer. These record participants go home and they're pickier and they promote a higher standard. Our replacements should be better than we ever were. And so I think we're becoming safer for that. (coughs) So I want to hit some of these topics and aircraft safety, man. Well, uh, this one's kind of your bread and butter. You are a pilot. Um, I really want to hit on some key ideas, some key thoughts on each of these topics that any uh, of us come up with. So questions from you fellas. If anybody on Facebook throws a question out that Justin deems worthy, you got to get it by the ginger. Uh, he might read some of those questions out loud. What's some of the key things? Let's go with a couple of them this year you've seen with aircraft safety. Oh, in the last year, uh, I mean, 
people are getting more aware. I think uh, social media is helping them uh, be aware and sharing those messages rather than the old way of, of just handed down from the elders to the to the noobs. Um, but I see the same incidents. It's it's there's nothing particularly new about aircraft and skydiving and gravity. I think it's just just people need to be disciplined and not complacent. Uh, this year I had somebody run within three feet of the running propeller of a Damn. twin otter. Scared the bejesus out of me. Um, Was it sitting still? Yeah, we were loading, and uh, the person had uh, forgotten their helmet, and rather than communicate that to the loader, and maybe the loader could go grab the helmet or, or whatnot, um, they just hopped off the aircraft, blasted past the loader, and headed straight for where the helmet was, which happened to be a perfect line three feet from the uh, propeller. So Fuck. Um, the propeller <coughs> might sound like a joke, but I, there have been jumpers on major drop zones that are known for safety. And I'm not saying that to attack them. I'm saying that out of respect to them, they have had jumpers walk into spinning propellers. Pilots do it all the time. Yeah. There's a sign behind one of our heads, behind J yeah. behind JP's head, the spinning propeller sign. That was actually a gift from Mark Fields, man. That danger nice. queer prop, man, that was yeah. from our boy Mark. That was for my birthday. Um, um, shit, man, sorry, I got sidetracked no, by Mark. No. <laughs> well, and, and, and so so the things we do, f so that was at a, at a non-space land drop zone. The things we do uh, internally at, at, at our organization is we create a loading area and a set of procedures that minimize that possibility, that, that produce, we have physical barriers that produce the least opportunity for somebody to put themselves in that dangerous spot. That said, when you operate outside of the norms, uh, that can happen. If you got to load somewhere else or, or, or people just get careless, you know, sometimes when they're a little too protected, they get a little complacent. Um, other aircraft issues, you know, I think it'll be never-ending. I see people get on aircraft all over the country uh, without their gear completely ready to go. And I think the most dangerous thing is they get away with it. You know, they hop on, leg straps loose, they tighten them up on the way up. But two, two components of that is when you get away with something repeatedly, eventually it will catch up with you. And two, I think every skydiver who's experienced has a, a responsibility to those that aren't experienced to set a fantastic example. So it may not be you that forgets to tighten your leg straps. It may be the recent graduate who sees how you behave and emulates it because you're the example of cool. Man, I want to. I, I was the cool kid once upon a time who got on the plane with my leg straps undone because I saw another cool kid do it. And me and my buddy are like, hey, we want to be like them. So we did the same thing. And at some point, somebody in the plane, man, very, very nice couple people. And I, to this day, can't tell you who they were, uh, but they left an impression. So I, I appreciate them. Uh, said something to me about it uh, respectfully, but at the same time, very obvious they were calling me out. And I was like, blah, blah, blah. I mm. kind of mouthed mouth off to him like I knew what I was doing. And the lady's like, I understand, and I don't disagree with any of what you're saying. But, man, if this plane and the pilot yells, get out of the plane right now, and we're getting out of this plane at 1,500 feet, and you fire that reserve, are you going to follow the bomb of your harness? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would argue I could tighten my leg straps up like under a canopy. I can fly it. I can steer it. I can figure it out. Out of those arguments, and I'm not going to say I was right because I think I was wrong, even though I thought I was right then. Mm. Uh, man, her point. You jump out of this plane in an emergency. You're tumbling at 1,500 <coughs> feet because the plane's about to blow up, and you got to pull your reserve handle. Mm -hmm. Are you going to fall through that harness? You, you can easily fall through your harness yeah. if it's not tightened. 
Well, and to that point, uh, to the, the point of, of when we get away with something for so long, we that's what's going to bite us. I, at a little over five years now, uh, professionally flying, and, and I, at last count, closing on 11,000 loads flown, um, I haven't had a significant in-flight emergency. As a skydiver for 20 years, I also haven't been on an aircraft with an in-flight emergency. So that would lead me to believe they're not going to happen, right? But as a pilot and a skydiver, I'm prepared for it to happen every single flight. Yeah, because a lot of those things aren't a problem. Like your loose leg straps aren't a problem yeah. until it's the biggest problem in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's and and for me and and as you hit on earlier, sometimes I'm a little too in my own head about safety. <laughs> for me, every flight where I'm in the back as a jumper, I'm thinking about what I'm going to do when the when the pilot says, "You all got to get out right now." I'm th I'm looking out, seeing where where I'm going to be landing. Are are we going to be over the DZ or am I going to be six miles south? I'm I'm thinking about the altitude I am. I'm thinking about how many people I got to get by and how slow they're going to react, right? So so those are all things that I think about every time. They don't preoccupy me to the point where I can't think about anything else, but they're just they're things that I drill myself in constantly. And as a pilot, every time I take off, I'm looking for where I'm going to put it down when the engines quit, you know. So those are things that that are always in my psyche, and I think that's what makes you more prepared for when something does go wrong. It's so important, man. It's think these things out. Uh, on my on the ride up to altitude, uh, when I see fifteen hundred feet, when I take my seatbelt off, I also think I can use my reserve now. Yeah. When I get above an altitude that allows me to use my main, and it depends on which canopy I'm jumping yeah. uh, on, what I actually make that decision on tandem, sure. us tiny main, big main. Um, I say, hey, I can exit on my main now. When I'm looking out of the plane, I'm not assessing everything for you and I. That happens right away. Yeah. But all I'm doing if I'm a new jumper is I'm looking for the first big open field I see near me. Oh, I can land there. A lot of my friends uh, I will accuse of underthinking, and I wish they would think more. And I would accuse a lot of friends of overthinking to the point that they worry themselves. They nitpick themselves. They make themselves ineffective. Definitely not you. It, it's, it's a balance. It's a yeah. balance. It's, a, it's having pre-run the checklist of things in the, in the hypothetical situation. But also knowing that when the moment comes, you've already done that. So now the things to do are get ready and remain as calm as possible. And you don't have to know as much information as a JP or a Nick would see when they look out that window. Just look out the window and go, there's a field. Yeah. I know I can land there. Over yeah. time, there's a field next to that other field I know. What's yeah. up, fields? You'll get to know it better. Um, take that time to know. And one of the things, tying those leg straps down, that that lady, man, I wish I could remember who they were. I, I didn't. They were so patient and respectful. Um, when I landed, I actually approached them and said, hey, man, I just want to uh, thank you. It did not fall on deaf ears. It really meant a lot to me. I appreciate you taking your time. Um, sorry I was a little bit of a D-bag. Um, I didn't say it that aggressively, but I did apologize for being a little bit uh, put off by them. Um, and the lady's like, cool, you know what? Do you mind if I share something else? I'm like, yeah. She goes, forget all that other safety stuff. Respect other people's spaces, too. You seem like a nice guy. When you're tightening your leg straps down, everybody else is uncomfortable. You're uncomfortable getting on the plane. It's not that uncomfortable, buddy. Those leg straps aren't that bad. They fit you really well, actually. But that little bit of discomfort, you're making everybody else uncomfortable when you're tightening up the plane, especially when you and your two other buddies are doing it. I'm like, oh. 
Man, respect people's space in the plane. When, when you brought up aircraft safety, the first thing that came to my mind was hold, hold still. Sit up straight and hold still. And, that, and that's a huge part of it. I think not only, not only from the safety, but from the comfort of other people. But Co- I think Comfort's a big thing. Especially, so I, I don't think that fun jumpers understand the struggle of, of working skydivers mm-hmm. when it comes to safety, or not safety, but, but comfort in the back of the airplane. That like I see all the fun jumpers get comfortable and they sit back on the rigs and they recline and th- that looks that looks really comfortable. But you know what's not happening is the tandem student is not laying on the instructor that right, way. Right. Just like I'm not laying on the tandem student that way. Yeah. And it's like that shape works really well up until the people that are forced to sit up straight because of yeah. the, this this tandem student yep. or the tandem gear that maybe might not let someone lay back in, in the same way. And it's like, hey, I, I get that you want to lay down. I get that you want to be comfortable. And there are times when everybody, you know, everyone's a fun jumper on the load. Everyone's trying to do that same thing, and that's going to work. But it's a really simple look over your shoulder to see, you know, what's happening behind you, if it's a good time to assume that position or not. <laughs> and I, I also, I get really bothered by when, th- so it's a light load, right? And everybody knows it's a light load. And the same people who always skip a seat are going to be the same people who are going to skip a seat on that light load. Yeah. And now the people who got in before them who loaded like it's a full plane, now they're crammed because they've done it like you're supposed to. The people at the front, you know, they're now they're also crammed because everyone took up room in the middle. And it's like, hey, if we all just load the plane like the plane's full every time, and then once everybody's in a seat, oh, hey, we can all... Yeah, move to, sp- to spread out a little bit, and and, and that's precisely it. I think it, I think from a weight and balance standpoint, a pilot's going to feel safer that way. Um, uh, I think it's an overlooked thing. We we do dirt dives, we do exit practice. Uh, I don't know where. I know it was early on in my skydiving career uh, when I was still a very young jumper, um, but at some point, the importance of planning where you were going to sit in relation to how you were going to exit the airplane was a very important thing for weight and balance reasons, for minimizing movement. To know. be lazy. It's yeah. so much easier to get out of the well, airplane if you sit smart. I've joked about that for years. I'm one of the laziest skydivers out there because lazy e- equivalent, the equivalent of lazy to me is efficiency, right? But if, if you sit way in the back of the airplane because it's the cool spot or it's the comfortable spot, but then you've got to climb over three people to get to your front float exit spot, you're creating an opportunity for excessive movement, inconveniencing people, other people got to move out of your way, and all that leads to knocked out pins and handles dislodged, and that becomes scary, especially to me as the pilot. I mean, like, if you guys are uncomfortable back there, guess what? I got my defined space with my armrests and everything else. (laughs) But it's when that person climbs out and they've knocked their pin half out and, th- and in the process of climbing out, it comes the rest of the way out and now i got a parachute going over the tail of a caravan. You know, that, that's, that's going to make everybody's day real bad. Especially mine. Because I'm not going to be able to yell at you <laughs> afterward. <laughs> yeah. Is, uh, some, someone asked me this question today. One of our newer package jumpers were asking about uh, rigs and airplanes and, and uh, some pilots wear them, some pilots don't. My understanding of it is the paperwork <coughs> with the airplane that dictates whether or not someone's required to wear a bailout rig or not? Pretty much. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to be in the, usually e- either in the aircraft's original approval or more likely in the approval for the modifications for jumping, usually relating to the jump door. So almost every 206 and 182 out there is going to require the pilot to wear a bailout rig because they're all copying from the one or two... Um, 
STC's uh, FA approvals for that mod. Um, when it comes to twin otters, they've been approved from the factory with flight with the door removed, uh, and and typically it hasn't been added in in the jump door paperwork. Um, caravans, I've seen them both ways. In fact, uh, the ones in our fleet, I think one does specifically require uh, via the paperwork, and the rest don't. I've gone back and forth. I've worn rigs and caravans. I haven't worn rigs and caravans. If I were smarter, I'd probably be always wearing a rig and a caravan. Um, but yeah, that's the 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 long version of it. So let's just say worst case scenario, you have someone have a, a premature opening in the door, mm -hmm. reserve parachutes strung over the over the tail. Uh, how how bad does that get for you as a pilot? Let's say it. I mean, is it is it worse if someone's hung up on the tail or if they remove part of the tail? So in a twin otter, there's there's video out there you can find of that exact scenario happening in a twin otter, and the twin otter is built uh, like a brick shit house, and uh, in that incident. The parachute slipped off the uh, horizontal stabilizer. The jumper cut away from the damaged parachute, landed normally. They inspected the aircraft after it landed. There was no damage they could find as far as I uh, hear the story. Convention. Uh, yep, yep. Hills Plains. Yep. The uh, caravan is built like a paper airplane. It's very strong in the directions it needs to be, but you hang a parachute over that tail, the tail's probably coming off. And it's happened once uh, in uh, Australia. And um, the person who had the premature was killed probably by hitting the tail. Um, the jumpers all got out, and the pilot escaped the aircraft, the uncontrollable aircraft, by climbing out of a seat, climbing up the floor, having to reopen the jump door because it, it had closed, and uh, estimates he got out of the aircraft at about 800 feet and pulled, pulled his pilot rig and landed within 100 yards of the, the wreckage. Holy shit. The, the person who asked me this question today also told me that story. He's an Aussie guy. Yeah. Said that uh, his his wife was out there that day on the so ground watching. So we're, we're starting a GoFundMe for my personal pilot rig. Um, <laughs> feel free to contribute <laughs> if you like me. Yeah. What's, uh, what's a pilot rig running these days? Oh, I think they're about 1500 1700 bucks. Not too horrible. <laughs> about the same as a Cypress. About yeah, the same as uh, another <laughs> sensible investment. Yeah, man, it, it is. Um, a couple things I want to hit on uh, with the conversations you've had is, number one, the safety aspect of moving around. It's not just your your pin going out or your, your uh, pilot shoot going out uh, off your back on the door or, or out the door. It's or, uh, or while, you're, while you're out the door, it's going out the door while you're in the airplane. Yeah. And there are plenty of pictures out there. Uh, Dan Pointer's uh, Handbook of Skydiving actually has a couple photos of people who've been ripped through the fuselage. Your pilot chute goes out, your main goes out with the deployment bag, it inflates, your lines literally rip and tear across the fuselage, the body, and then yeah. you're, there's a hole where the body gets sucked out. It's Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, I mean, think it's about like the final force. destination type shit. Oh, yeah. You know, your pilot chute's generating at 120 miles an hour, 80, 85 pounds of force. That's, you know, a 24-inch pilot chute. What's a 170-square-foot parachute generating 120 miles an hour? It happened um, two or three years ago uh, in Florida. Uh, the old uh, San Marcos caravan was sold to a drop zone down there, the short one, and they were doing, um, there's a couple outfits uh, that do reenactment, World War II reenactment jumps, and they were doing those out of it. So they were static line jumps at a relatively low altitude, and the jump master, who was wearing full kit with a front-mounted reserve, was dispatching people and then looking out the door 
and somehow his reserve deployed. And I saw that aircraft. Uh, I saw photos of it, and then I saw it in the repair shop and the amount they had to repair it. It's amazing. It didn't, it didn't Total take the it. aircraft down. Yeah. But that rear door frame of the caravan um, had basically a human-sized dent in it. Uh, so instead of being a, a vertical line, it now arced back past where the camera step was. Looks like a crater. It looked like somebody yeah. literally just take a human body and throw it at as hard as you can and leave the cartoon impression of the human body. And that's the thing is is airplanes are are built strong in the directions they need to be, but if they were built like a Ford F-250, they never get off the ground because they'd be too heavy. So they're built out of very lightweight materials which aren't very strong in their non-intended directions. Um, most of the, the skins, for example, on a caravan are 20,000-inch aluminum, which is like a beer can crushed flat. You know, there's There's... Not a lot of structure to it. Think about that if you're ever climbing outside of the airplane onto the camera step. Um, if you're ever climbing outside of the airplane in any other position, I know one of my favorite places to launch is getting that rear float, hanging on the bottom underneath corner, kind of pushing down. Um, you, you really need to know your aircraft. You need to know what's where. You need to know that you could really easily dent at, at minimal some of these planes. Yeah, so we built the camera set strong enough to handle people, but when people put their foot up on the side of the aircraft yeah, do you and, know, that and launch me themselves so off. so badly. Yeah. Like when you see someone looking like Spider-Man hanging onto the to the bar yeah. and both feet on the side of the plane yeah. for some fucking reason. Yeah, that, that's that's like, now man. you're going to put 100, 100 to 150 pounds of force in your launch off of the yeah, airplane I to mean, get can you all of a foot further out from it. Yeah. Can you imagine watching someone do that to an airplane on the ground? I'm like going to I'm going to go to do that to the next person's Lexus. <laughs> 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 Man, um uh, the comfort thing is a huge deal. We talk about moving around for safety. Yeah, if you're if you're comfortable, there's a really good chance that m- you're there doing are it far wrong. more people on the airplane who are uncomfortable. <laughs> you're, you're probably doing it wrong. So yeah, just <laughs> I, I, almost everything for me when we talk about safety and you know the consideration of others, it just comes down to awareness. Yeah, like opening up your eyes, realizing that you're not the only one skydiving today, and uh, if there's if there's bent like. The straddle benches drive me crazy because it's the easiest and most comfortable thing to make work when everybody participates. Yeah. But when you are sitting in an airplane with straddle benches, the, the people on the floor are usually, usually the people that start to drive me crazy because there's not a bench to keep you in line anymore. Yeah. So people will scoot off to one side or the other and they kind of lean up against the wall and get comfortable. And now they're laying on top of my foot. Uh-huh. The reason that we all fit is because we're all the same <laughs> shape, right? So you're copying and pasting the shape in it's front of you and everybody fits. But now there's one person leaning over and they're crushing my foot. Yeah. And now when I try and move my foot, they look over my shoulder like I'm kicking their rig. And it's like, hey, asshole, if you knew yeah. how to ride in an airplane, neither one of us would be in this situation. It's, it's amazing. So it's, a, it's a space that can fit a, about two people. And we put four in it, yet they find about a million different configurations out to put those people. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll sit three wide. We'll sit four wide. Yeah. We'll sit, yeah. yeah. Just right. if, you're li- if you're riding in, in any of our <laughs> straddle bench caravans and you're on the floor, best thing to do is just sit and like yeah. the benches keep going. Yeah. Everybody fits great. You're all spoons. But Stop being a fork in the spoon <laughs> drawer. There you go. <laughs> but now if, if this person is crammed in that quarter and they're on my foot and now I'm trying to turn yeah. to to not be cram- by not be smashed by them and now I'm bumping my rig into the person behind me cuz I'm in a different shape to try and accommodate the person that started the problem in the front but if we all just sit straight yeah. oh it's so great and then the person behind you you're you're turning to not have yeah, your foot crushed. Yeah, I'm turning to not have my foot so crushed. So now, now, now I'm making the person behind me uncomfortable. Now your rig, not necessarily yours because it's small, but your rig is now on somebody else's leg, making it super uncomfortable. 
you're on the straddle bench and you're turning and twisting, you're driving your rig into other people's legs. And, dude, your rig is heavy when it's sitting on my knee. Yeah. It really is. It's heavy when sitting on your back. It's heavier on my knee. And it's pushing your pilot chute out. It's pushing your hacky out. So it's unsafe. So, like, just sit straight. Be spoons in a spoon drawer. We're not forks, <laughs> motherfuckers. We're spoons. But, but I think this is a perfect example of, like, why, why rules like three years in the sport exist. Of, like, hey, it takes some experience of being someone who's inconvenienced by the choices or actions of, of somebody else to realize, like, oh, I can actually, I can yeah. do a much better job of riding in the airplane and be considerate of others. And y- you know when I, f- I found uh, some of that learning curve is the greatest is when they, uh, you know, often videographers, uh, uh, that's uh, somebody's first job in skydiving, right? It's their first, uh, first jump job. And, um, and I watch how you guys do it, and, and we're so well-practiced here. You put yourself in the aircraft so that you have to make minimal movement to conduct your interviews and that sort of stuff. And you watch sometimes people who are fresh at it who haven't witnessed that experience and, and absorbed that. And they'll get up and they, they're you know, bowling a china shop to get an I- interview. And you're like, man, learn the easy way. Just chill. Little movement. Yeah, I get That's something that I, I saw recently. I won't, I won't name names, but I saw someone who was really experienced yeah. uh, mentoring people. And this person went from their seat all the way on the, the very back step of the caravan is where they yeah. were seated because they were in a belly group and they were going to be first out. Yeah. And this person walked all the way up the aisle to the very front of the airplane to high five his buddies bef- yeah. before exiting. And then yeah. be- so he's hitting everybody on the way up, backing up into everybody, elbow yeah. and everyone on the way down. It's like, hey, you're, you're mentoring somebody right now. Yeah. Are you really trying to tell them that this is a good way yeah. to conduct yourself yeah. on a skydive? Like. Mm-hmm. Hey, this person thinks you're cool. They're watching you do this. You're saying that this is okay. It's it's a hard thing, I think, to remember that that we are examples, right? Because we're always looking up to our examples, but we forget that at some point we become somebody else's example, right? We become what somebody else wants to emulate. So, well, I'm gonna say this person should have known better. Yeah, but true. High fives <coughs> are great. High five your buddies. Yeah. Lots of us have personal high fives with our with our friends. That's all good. Do the air high five. Yeah, do the air high five or just... I enjoy long distance high yeah, fives. D- I mean, touch the people who are within arm's reach. And if you got to yeah. push four other people out of the way who are trying to put on heavy camera helmets <laughs> or communicate <laughs> with an SDP student, yeah, if you think your high five is more important than that, you know, maybe you should... You're the asshole. ...reevaluate your sense of <laughs> self-importance. While it's on my mind, uh, uh, talking about seating in the aircraft, one of my pet peeves as a pilot and as a jumper but as a, a pilot is so everybody you know in in the twin otters that have the the doghouse open or in the caravan you got the step in the back um, and everybody wants that because it's it's comfortable there's nobody sitting in your lap etc but when it comes time to exit and it's like the third group out that's in that spot you know and we're already worried about the weight of the exit like if you're back behind the edge of the door inside the aircraft, and it's a 10-way stacked outside, you've mm. just made it an 11-way, weight-wise. You may not be leaving with the group, but the weight is back there. So it's it's kind of that whole, you know, first in, first out, right? You know, it's like, uh, actually, that didn't make any sense. But no, I get what you're first but you know what I mean? Yeah, I got yeah. you. <laughs> you know, but it, but, but it, we should be loading yeah, the like airplane in a like way if that if unloading yeah. it makes sense. If you're not in the first group out, don't be on the shelf when, or in the doghouse, when the first group's leaving. Like, that's just really poor planning. So. I, I think it's hard to understand for some people and tell you... Uh, <laughs> I actually heard Trent make this analogy about uh, 
where the where the I think you talked about the wheels on a skateboard. Yeah. And the distance from the wheel, the further back you are from the wheel, the <coughs> less weight it takes to tip the skateboard. Yeah. That if you're right on top of the wheel, you can put a lot of weight yeah. there. But the further back you go, the less weight it's going to take to. I've used this analogy before. I used it uh, yesterday when I was flying. Uh, Nicole came along with me and, and flew uh, a couple loads and uh, got interested in the mechanics of jump run and, and, and what I was doing with the yoke. And I explained it as, as the airplane at that point is a teeter-totter. So when it's full and there's a big group climbs out, I have to use a lot of force to counter that teeter-totter from rocking back. And then as soon as they fall off, I have to do the opposite because the nose wants to drop. Now, as the aircraft gets lighter and lighter, I need less of that control force, and I can also fly slower and slower. But it's, it's why we tell people, you know, practice your exit so that it takes the least amount of time to climb out <laughs> and, and minimize the, the have weight. Have you met belly jumpers? Yes. <laughs> hey, listen, I've, I've flown to Guayo, and they're, they're, they're pretty talented. But that's a long climb out. That's one of my favorite things to do. I mean, this just makes me an asshole, but it's one of my favorite things to do is when I see a big group of belly jumpers and we're on jump run, I start looking around at people. Okay, what are your bets? How many seconds are we looking at? (laughs) And it's real fun when it's almost always longer than anyone dared to guess. Knock on wood, I haven't stalled one yet, but that doesn't mean I couldn't tomorrow. No yoking around. No yoking around. <laughs> womp, womp. Sorry. Sorry. I Wait. like that. Was quick thinking. Man, I, I, whew, that was rough. So hand me a tic-tac, <laughs> first of all, uh, before you get moving on. Uh, guys, gals, uh, we could go on aircraft safety all day long. We have other okay, topics I want to hit. Set up, hold still. Absolutely. Uh, proper loading order. Be yeah, nice man. to the pilot. Stay away from the p- spinny thing. Bring your pilot a beer one day. Uh, yeah. Tell compliment his mustache. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> aircraft safety, equipment safety, we're probably going to be a little bit quicker conversation tonight just because we do a lot of stuff with riggers. But um, equipment safety, I want to talk a little bit about daily inspection, daily wear and tear, things to know about your gear because today it seems like jumpers don't appreciate their gear. Um, I don't want an RSL, but I do have to have a skyhook. Um, man, your skyhook relies on an RSL, so you have to have both. It's a line I hear, and, and, and I'm not mocking those people as much as it's just proof we need I'm to educate better. I'm so incredibly happy that, that 20 years after I started this sport, the idea of an RSL is popular and accepted by experienced jumpers, where, as when I started, it was almost the badge you used to prove I'd arrived. Oh, I don't need an RSL. I don't want one. They're dangerous. The statistics bear it out. Uh, I believe the last time I did the research, it's it's uh, about six people a year on average. Are c- you may know this number, but I think it's about six people in a year on average are killed either through a low re- reserve deployment post-cutaway or no reserve deployment post-cutaway. And the RSL, in, in my book, the RSL would save more lives than AADs. So... It, uh, I'm, I'm fantastically, ha- and the Skyhook helped with that, or any of the Mards have helped with that. Uh, so I'm fantastically happy to see that. But it's just the idea of an RSL that, that to back you up. I think is fantastic. There is, uh, I think, two this last year. Yeah. Uh, low cutaways, um, or no cutaway. Yeah. What, there's only one actually low cutaway. Uh, RSL would have saved them. There is a one uh, no cutaway situation. Yeah. So. A low reserve pool, uh, Cypress Fire into a Snivel to Cypress Fire. Yeah. Sorry, fantastic jogging data in my head. It w- that was like our number two category after canopy, uh, uh, good canopy deaths, wasn't it? Uh, incorrect emergency per- procedures. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, last uh, year or two, incorrect emergency procedures has been by far one of the leading uh, problems. 
Uh, we'll hit EPs at the end of end of the session, though. I was just gonna gonna throw in you're you're never too experienced to stand in uh, a roundabout Ooh, function junction. Oh man! It's, I actually really like going over there because every time I stand in the heart, like this happens a few times a year where I'll just get the bug of like, hey, I'm gonna go watch these people do EPs, and I'm gonna stand in the in malfunction junction. I'm gonna pull some handles. And every time I do it, it seems like the person teaching the class thinks that I'm like there to spy on them or to fuck their game up. But I'm really just there to to participate and pull handles and to, to think it through. It sucks. I like to watch people teach over there. And it's because I enjoy watching them teach. It's like, man, I'll, it, chances are if I'm going to sit there and watch you teach something, I actually am there to enjoy it. If I'm spying on you, I'm not going to sit there and watch you teach. That's, <laughs> you're obviously going to behave if I'm sitting there. And a lot of my friends have come to know that if I'm sitting there watching you, I'm there to take in information. But like you said, people get all nervous and sketchy. And I'll ask the class at some point, like, yo, did he start acting different when I walked in? And people will all say yes. I'm like, all right, I'm out. Sorry, guys. I'm, I'm obviously a distraction here. Um, go sit and do EPs, man. Go go do your emergency procedures. We'll get back to that. We uh, Equipment safety, know your gear, guys. Really, like... Have you ever seen your reserve get repacked? Now, be careful when you ask your rigger to be able to do that. If they're super busy and you're asking, like, hey, man, I forgot to get my rig packed. It's due today. I want to jump today. Can you pack it now? Probably not the best time for them for you to watch them. But hang out and see. Hang out and watch. And you'll very quickly grab the hint. If he's not talking to you much, just let him pack. Get to know your gear. What do you? Where are you with that? The uh, You know, we have... Uh a culture of, of jumpers that, that don't pack for themselves, uh, even more so than, than I can remember from years past. And I think that's equally as important is if you're not looking at your own gear on a daily basis, I'm not knocking packers or, or people using packers, but uh, are you really going to trust somebody else to inspect your, your gear and its daily wear condition? completely or are you going to occasionally look at your rig yourself so you know do that one pack job at the end of the day or at least run your lines and look and see how shredded your brake lines are getting or are they all twisted up and wearing out because of that you know look at your uh, bridle attachment point look at those things look at your rig more than just throwing it over your shoulders putting it on and checking three buckles you know and three rings you know like actually look at the rig and don't just trust that the rig are looking at it every 180 days and the packer who's who's doing the best job they can but is also rushed you know are they going to put the same attention into it that you should be yeah if you don't understand why the wear of your closing loop is an important thing to pay attention to then yeah. maybe you should know a little bit more about yeah. about what's actually saving your life yeah or that that off landing you had or or that swoop that went bad and you went tumbling through the l- the landing area did you did you did you put an abrasion on your harness you know and and did you did you think to look at it and see if there's damage you know or did you just throw it down for the packer and trust that they caught it? Man, you, you definitely need to know your gear. Inspect it regularly. That's something we don't see, and that's something that bothers me is people do not do regular gear checks. It, it, it is to a point of concern for me. Um, one of them that, that for me is a very fair compromise, but I, I want to address because it is a compromise, is pin checks in the plane. Yep. Um, I regularly see people who don't get complete pin checks in the plane, but I also do believe I can fully check my pin. 
I also believe I'm an expert. I just, oh, I'm an arrogant dick. I'm an expert. But I'm I'm guilty of it as well. Enough. Yeah, I I am just as guilty of it. I jump a, a pull out, and the number of times I've had somebody look at my rig mm-hmm. and not have ever seen a straight pin, although I think it's becoming more common, not have understood what the grommet sticking out of the bottom is, uh, and 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 want to mess with it. I at that moment I don't have the time. So I I'm a bit selfish in that. I don't necessarily ask for them. If somebody wants to offer me one, I'll I'll, I'll let them. Um, but I can also reach back, and I know my gear well enough. I can reach under the flap and check my pin by feel. So I think that's also a valid thing. One of the things that we'll do at Safety Day is we'll have a gear inspection station at Houston, and it'll be three or four rigs. All of them will have some misrig issues, and all of them will have some alternate issues. For example, uh, my pullout will be out there, and it will be packed right. The pullout portion, nothing else, I promise you. Uh, but that pull-out portion will be routed right because in the gear inspection station, we want you to learn what that looks like. Alternate bridle routings. We'll do some of those properly. We'll do some of those improperly to make sure you understand what those look like. Um, get to know that gear better and do a gear check before you put the rig on the plane. I trust my packers. I don't. Man, I love our packers. I've got a lot of respect, and, and I think we have one of, uh, one of the more solid core of packers we've had in a, in a long time, this, this staff. But I don't trust them. And I don't trust <laughs> you, and I don't trust yeah. you. I mean, it's it's. I told Nick he was too close the other day. He scared me. He that's made just me see, a, that's made me just myself. I, what, was I was I too close? No, no. It was my initial reaction because I didn't expect you there. Remember, I told you too close, too close. No, never mind. Oh never yeah, mind. during that cutaway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that that's just a, a a good philosophical point to be though. Is is you know, I don't trust anybody because I need to trust myself. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's only yeah. logical that yeah. I care about my survival more than you do. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It's and I don't trust myself, man. That's why doing extraordinary jumps, man. Yeah. Nick, have you ever given me so many gear checks in my life? Uh, no, but it's <laughs> fun. I mean, I do, dude. I cannot change like uh, change risers, like change a three ring system, uh-huh. without asking for somebody else's eyeballs to be on it. Yeah. And, and I know what a properly routed three ring system looks like by now. But it's like, hey, hey, Matthew, would you mind looking at this? Does this look right? Did I do this right? And part part of it, it's like I present it almost like a joke. But man, it makes me feel a lot better when when fresh eyeballs, especially, just take a look at it. Yeah, so I feel better. So here's something that that is going to sound a little weak because I can't think of the example right now. But I know I've I've thought this in the past and I've thought it recently about something. But is people who do things with their gear, packing, assembly, whatever, that are contrary to the manufacturer's instructions. I'm not saying they're the end-all, be-all, and I'm not saying there's not sometimes better ways to do things, but s- frequently I'll see people do alternate because somebody else does alternate. They haven't really thought through the process. So so if you're going to deviate, know why, know the ramifications, and 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 understand the risk you may be taking on by doing that. Man, I think uh, not... Can you think of an example yeah, of uh, that? Uh, I just can't. More think anecdotal, yeah, yeah. Anecdo- anecdotal. Yeah. Uh, but pullouts. A lot of people will go to a pullout <laughs> because guys who uh, they respect jump pullouts, and and they kind of have followed that that flock, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't understand there are inherent dangers to pullouts. There are downsides to them, and there's ways to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's the same idea, different different yeah. topic. Man, equipment, get to know your gear better, guys. Spend time with your rigger. If you're buying gear, don't just buy gear because somebody told you really nice marketing words. Get to understand the gear. But find people who bought the gear and, and speak and ask them about the gear themselves. This segment's been brought to you by Infinity VSE. Thank you. <laughs> Velocity Sports Equipment is one of the fine sponsors of Gravity Lab Radio. Myself and Nicholas Lott. 
as well as uh love you Kelly. Yeah. Uh man, it, it's uh yeah, get to know the infinity man. And and really one of the things I'll say is find somebody who will give you advice about rigs without bias. It's one of the things DQ once upon a time heard me telling somebody about an infinity because they asked me, "Hey DJ, tell me about this infinity." And when I got done, uh, DQ across the packing room called me a fanboy and blah, blah, blah. Don't listen to me. He's just a fanboy. And I looked at DQ and I called him. I said, look, dude, you know me. Absolutely. hundred percent. I'm a fanboy. I believe in the product. But if you ask me about Javelin, I'll sell it to you right now. I believe it's a good rig as well. I promote good rigs. And I agree with what DQ is trying to get at. Be careful who you ask. Yeah. Um, Be careful of the person that gives you an an only answer. Yeah. Not not a, a, a and and seek multiple answers. If a rig is unsafe that much, people would be dead and it wouldn't <laughs> be for sale. Right. Man, there's so many rigs out there that are phenomenal options today. The safety uh, margin is not that significant of a difference. They're they're all overall safe rigs. There's preferences more than there is safety. And and yeah, they pertain to safety, but but again they're preferences. So um there are other things. Get to know your gear. Uh, free fall. Free fall really, Nick, is, is kind of your forte. You're the guy who falls the most around here. I fall a little bit. You fall a little Usually bit. Usually at the end of a landing. So, man, here <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about group safety, group-mindedness, group sizing. So why don't you uh, talk? Start small <laughs> is obviously the, the, the best way to go. Valerie yeah. took that advice. <laughs> <laughs> but especially <laughs> when you're moving to a new discipline, right? Like I, I was guilty when I started free-flying that I was really, really bad at it. And I didn't understand that that there's intentional forward and backward movement involved in free-flying. I just thought, I'm sit-flying, I'm doing it! (laughs) I'm the king of the world! (laughs) And then the first time I went out with other people who were also sit-flying, who happened to be good at it, I couldn't get there at all. I had no idea. And I had no no business being on the four-way that I was on. And I mean, I wasn't even on the jump anymore because I had backslid totally away from it. So I think uh, small groups are really important when you're working on anything new. Just like when you started your solo progression, you started with you and the instructor, right? You're learning from one person who's there to teach you. And that should be a similar similar situation when you're learning anything new. It should be a small group and hopefully you're uh, learning from the other person. Again, I can speak from experience of the bad habits that you learn by doing too many solos when you're doing a new thing. This was my experience in learning to sit fly also is like, hey, I don't want to do these belly jumps. I'm just going to go do my solo sit and I'm going to be the man by the time I'm, I'm, you know, by the time anyone else wants to go free fly, I'm going to know all about how to do it. And that is uh, not how that works, I promise. Leave you in the dust. But uh, yeah, start start with two ways. Once a two way is good, add somebody else. I think the, the true test of your skill is when you go on a three way and you're not the base. So you're you're the let's say that we're going on a three way belly jump and you guys are launching a two way round and it's my job to either float or dive to get to you. That's when I figure out how much I do or don't suck at <laughs> skydiving because now now I mean with just one other person, that one other person's coming to you all the time, right? Even if they don't have the skills to get there, you guys are constantly both trying to come together. But when it's a two way base, which uh, may may or may not be moving, but it's definitely not coming towards me. Now I've got to test whatever skills I've got to get over to it, have a good approach, good dock, all that stuff. So, yeah, once you have a few good three ways, then, you know, four ways, five ways, and then get on some organized uh, organized belly jumps if we're talking about uh, the belly progression. 
And then when yeah, when you move on to sit flying, it should be almost like uh, starting over, starting over with that one other person. And then once you can get good with that one other person, you're gonna attach yourself with some three ways, being not the base, being not the person that everybody's coming to, and then uh, and then grow from there. And then uh, I think angle jump should be the same thing. I think uh, I was actually. D- do you know what the stati- statistics are about angle angle groups and fatalities this year? Has that been a thing? There is nothing uh, contributed to angle groups this year because that was a, a there was kind of a spike with that a few years past. Right? Uh, I don't remember anything well on there that. There were but some free fall collisions. I'm going to say I, I saw yeah. some really gnarly free fall yeah, collisions yeah. when angle. And, it, and if they didn't make the fatality list, they made the Friday freak yeah, out. Yeah, they made sure. the holy shit. I don't want to be on that skydive <laughs> list for for damn sure. Yeah. But uh, that that I've definitely seen a lot less of that, uh, just because I think that it's something that you know people have kind of started to figure out. Okay. Flight paths, we need those. Okay, uh, these are the free fall skills you need. This is what the coaching progression looks like. And I think that, uh, again, mm-hmm. that's a, a start small. Start small and, and move up. I, I mean, I'm pretty comfortable on uh, most uh, like most movement jumps. But if it's more than you know four or five people that I don't know, no, I don't want to go on that jump. I was, I was going to just hit on that it's it's a lot about do you know the people's skill level so somebody might show up to the drop zone and say they're a badass but i i don't know that i'd i'd go on a big way with them until i verified that skill you know right yeah you kind of uh, if you can't keep track yeah. of everybody that you're on the jump with yeah that you don't know that's probably not a jump i would go on I, I, I think we've all been through the experience of uh and it, some reason it always seems to happen on sunset load but the the loosely organized dive of some sort you know whether whether it was a campfire sit fly dive or whatnot and then people start adding on and by the five minute call somebody's throwing their gear on and you just met them and all just float and be on the outside and that's the guy who's whistling past your canopy at you know 2500 feet still in free fall because you never saw him <laughs> he, he corked out you know at 10,000 feet yeah i think uh there's a really True great story. really great reason that we ask people to be geared up and in the loading area on a five minute call so everybody has a has a plan, right? So we're not throwing things out or yeah. throwing things together at the last minute. But uh, am I going the right direction with this? No, maybe, y- maybe you have a question to no, get you back you on track. No, we're good. My, Go ahead. My progression uh, was belly first, and the drop zone that I started at was was a very talented belly group, and and we were a very tight community in that in that sunset load was even the free flyers would come and we'd just do, you know, a really high quality belly dive briefed on a 20-minute call because we all had those skills and we'd all work together and we all uh, uh, had, had that synergy. But you've also been on the last load of the day where everybody's tracking. Oh, yeah. Everyone's in oh. one group and you see five people. Oh, yeah. I've, I've, I have been, uh, unfortunately, in my dumber years, have been the organizer of a three-plane sunset load tracking dive and literally leading the thing at 10,000 feet going, oh, God, just let me get away from this thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, the point I was tr- starting to get at is uh, my progression was belly to free fly and, and beyond. Um, and, and then uh, my experience as a, a former tunnel instructor is that it's the difference between flight is not as great as we think. It's all flying, and the skills we learn from every type of flight are important. So, uh, so what I'm getting at is I see some people who think, oh, i got to get to free flying. And I, uh, possibly the modern g- the generation of the tunnel has worked this out. What are your feelings about about belly flying to teach things like relativity, to, so b- to I being relative, I right? think that it's a lot easier to teach somebody just a new orientation 
yeah. instead of also teaching them in the orientation and the fundamentals of flying with yeah. another group. So belly is where we're going to have the most time to learn how to fly with other people. Yeah. The slowest speeds when we're dealing with uh, approach and, and sure. flying relative to other people and fall rate changes and all of that. And uh, we've all, you know, by the time you've got your license and you're ready to jump with people, you've, you've got the survival skills yeah. for, for your belly, right? So yeah. it's the most sensible place. Sure, you're not going to be looking like the coolest guy on Instagram right away, but... Um, all of the people who are those badasses that you're trying to be, almost all of those people, I would say, you could throw on a on a belly relative yeah. dive, uh, uh, relative jump, and, and they're going to do well. Yeah, and um, and I think you can learn multiple disciplines at the same time, but yeah, for not sure. shirking the skills you I learn mean, doing the not cool jumps. You know that that, that you you don't realize you're learning skills on how to be relative to other people. In those uh, jumps, you know? I, th I think years ago yeah. I probably would have argued the opposite point of yeah. that. I think someone needs to really know how to fly on their head well before they start doing uh, movement jumps. Yeah, and uh, I've seen it work well, so yeah. I'm ki I've kind of eaten my words on that. <laughs> that um, I've seen people who can't fly on their head do really great at flying angles. Yeah, and so I think that there's just um, you don't necessarily have to master sit flying and then yeah. master head down flying and then master angle flying that you can as long I, I think as long as you start with a really good foundation of belly skills i think that's the one thing that you can't cheat that you need to have the good understanding the fundamentals of being in a group and proper proper approach uh overall awareness and proper breakoff yeah and then you can translate that to, to everything else but i would say that on your belly is the most practical and it's safest cool. and cost effective way to manage that it's also a most aware way. It's something I think that everybody hits on is have a plan, be able to execute that plan before you move on. And really, A, every skydive, have an absolute plan, man. I say every skydive. You've got to have your skydive where you're going out with a two-way buddy and you're a buddy two-way and you're getting loose. But even that loose plan, like Nick and Tex going out and chasing each other around the sky, has some loose plan to it. But as you're learning, progress with a plan. The plan might be, JP, we're finally going to get that dock on this yeah. jump, dude. We were so close. And if your goal is only to get that dock, get that dock. And do it until you can get that dock smoothly. And then plan a second point. This is on your belly. Hey, man, we can do two fucking points, bro. And then plan three. When you can successfully do three over and over again on the same skydive, if you can do the same three points three times, Man, then move on. Add a fourth person to the group. Then move on. Add two more people to the group. Then move on. Go into into free flying. And if everything you do, as Nick suggested, you take this approach to it, it's going to seem slow at first. My God, you're going to learn so fucking quick in the end and safe. When when was the last time you went on a solo free fly jump? <laughs> do your hop and pops count? No. Okay. 2004, <laughs> five, 2005, okay. and I can tell you yet why. Okay, well, I, I guess I'm only just trying to lead into my next question. of How much fun would it be for you right now to go do a solo sit, sit fly jump? Pretty fucking fun. Okay, what, <laughs> let's say that you do three of those in a day. How much fun is the Oh, uh, The only one was fun, dude. The, the second one was just boring as fuck. Yeah. And then what are we going to do after that? What are you going to do to spice it back up? Man, I'll do a flip, then I'm going to start tracking for a while. Okay, now that shit's boring. <laughs> now what? Oh, what am I really going to do? 
I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go find you and say, Nick, please come jump with You're me. You're gonna bring a buddy, right? Yeah, for sure. Because that's what's gonna make it more fun. 100%. But let's say that I've been doing the same thing where I'm doing a bunch of shitty solo sit fly jumps. What's gonna happen when we get out and sit fly together? Oh, dude, you're going to suck. Or I'm going to suck whoever it was doing solos. <laughs> yeah, this is what I love hearing this conversation. I fucking love hearing this out of people's mouths when they accuse the other two people who are <laughs> flying together of, man, you guys were backing up the yeah. whole time. Why are y'all yeah. circling yeah. around yeah. me the whole time? <laughs> I love it. I love that shit. Everybody's wrong but me. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. It's so great how, man, even at differing it levels of experience, you still hear that. It's funny. Right. It's funny because uh, where where is the humility gone? You know, like like I can distinctly remember the first time the local four way team, uh, three of the members took me out uh, and and did a four way with me, and I had I don't know forty five jumps, and I thought I was awesome. I was ready to be on airspeed, and so I, then the next weekend I grabbed three of my buddies and I went and did the exact same skydive, and we got two points. <laughs> Man, you guys really <laughs> suck. God damn. You know, but but no, I instantly realized I go. Geez, those three people made me look good, you know. But yeah, I've I've seen the same thing where 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 there's a certain amount of of denial in in self evaluation and and people are like, oh, you guys suck because I know I'm solid. DJ, uh, do you remember the first time you realized that you sucked at skydiving? I still <laughs> suck at skydiving. I don't. I, I what? <laughs> <laughs> Man, uh, probably that lady who put me in check in the plane and said, "Yo, bro, uh, you should put your leg straps on." Uh, it was it was free it was free flying it was getting on my head getting on my head's always been my struggle bus, and when I got out and started to fly on my head I'm like oh my god this shit is so fucking hard, um that that is when I realized I also got on my head super early so how many jumps is super early, a couple hundred, two hundred ish jumps, mm, hundred fifty two hundred jumps somewhere okay. around there. Well, what what sort of belly experience did you have before that? Oh, dude, I was. Or what was your skydiving experience oh, like? Dude. I, I think I got like before my AFF rating, maybe twenty belly jumps, not counting camera video. Oh, uh, dude, I was free flying by twenty jumps. Um, you were the fucking guy, right? Dude, that's that was what we did in the nineties, man. It was definitely a different culture. Um, I we were free flying, and I'm not saying it was right. I'm not saying we did it well. Um, but that's what we were doing. And when I got to do my AFF course, I looked. I pass AFF course because it takes some belly skills, but man, I look like a fucking salmon flopping around a student. <laughs> look like this oh. guy spazzing. Next well, to and, it. and and I think I think those uh, uh, those experiences make us stronger or weaker in different areas. You know, yeah. uh, that's what I did when when I couldn't find anybody to jump with. Is I'd go, oh, I'm gonna go practice my stand or my sit or something like that. You know, um, we weren't cool enough to just call it upright flying back then, but. Yeah, upright or head up. You know, you know, yeah, you're yeah, a cool uh, guy. Head up, um, but but you know, you mentioned the AFF course. When I went and did my AFF course, I was a tandem instructor. I was a tunnel flyer, but I wasn't like a hardcore four way uh, flyer. You know, I was a belly flyer as well. And I went through the course with the other candidate uh, on most of the skydives. Was a hardcore belly flyer, a uh, hardcore four way flyer, and they, you know. Working close to the student, they were smoking me right up until the evaluator rolled over. And then all of a sudden, my breadth of experience was more beneficial in that realm than theirs. You know, they, it took them a long time to get to the student versus it was natural. So I, so I guess back to the point of I think a well-rounded skydiver is going to be that much more talented that quicker if they open themselves to a lot of different ways of flying. 
And the tunnels only made that more evident, I think. Yeah, get tunnel time. If you want to be a serious skydiver, tunnel's a super, super great resource that we should all take Wh- advantage of. What I was talking with somebody about that I love about the tunnel and the and the environment is for a long time, I think tunnel flyers, when they came out to skydive, felt pressure to be like the skydivers and, and get on small canopies and jump small gear because that's what the, the standard of cool was. And I don't see that as much anymore. I see them being comfortable flying gear that is at their skill set. They're very talented in free fall. They don't have the, the experience on on parachutes to match their free fall experience as, as by skydiving conventions. And so therefore, uh, I love that the, the, the ego seems to have gone out of it and people are much more comfortable jumping something appropriate for them. I, I think conservative is the new cool is the way that I want to, d- to describe that. I like that. The, the, the there are enough cool, really talented people preaching safety first that uh, people have started to listen. I think that's awesome. But uh, So what I you're th- saying is, for all these years, it, w- it would have worked for me if I'd just been cool. Yeah, it's hip to be people square. Would've, people would have listened to me <laughs> if I'd been cool. No, that's never going to work. Oh, yeah. But uh, with the, this point of starting small, uh, I don't mean go on a solo. So start small, but uh, so- solo jumps of any sort, uh, I think that they have their place. But uh, if that's the sort of jumps that you're doing over and over you're going to, one, get bored with skydiving and quit doing it because you're going to think that there's no you know, no growth left. Or uh, you're going to develop a lot of bad habits. They're going to take you a lot more time and money to break, and you're just going to be a shitty skydiver. So don't do solos. Two ways with a coach. Um, as far as, and I think we've, we've talked about group size enough. Agreed? Oh, for sure. Okay, so uh, other, other free fall safety, just obvious things. Uh, line of flight. Uh, oh, yeah. Ground speed and separation. Um, the, the more I find myself constantly counting people of who's out before me, who's going to be the close, who's the closest group. Do I know what their parachutes look like? Who's out after me? Am I going to, uh, be in the pattern with this belly group? Cause they're out 15, you know, 20 seconds. And when does that process start for you? Does it start as they're exiting? Does it start on the ride up? It starts on the right up. Or like for me, it starts in the loading area. When I'm looking at the load, I'm getting on with it. It might start in the loading area if if everybody's out there and and we're doing a good job of of, uh, organizing the the load. But usually I'm still, if if I'm dirt diving, my brain's still usually in that mode. And then there's going to be a moment in the airplane where I take a good inventory when it's fresh in my memory. You know, not not quite on jump run, but as we're moving, you know, this is kind of, pre-gear up, I guess, yeah. is when I'm going to really, really take a serious note of, okay, there's the six-way belly, and I'm going to kind of expect them to be here, and, oh, I know he's going to hold in deep breaks, so I'm going to watch <laughs> out for this guy, and, oh, I got so-and-so spiraling down after me, so I'm going to keep an eye out over here. Maybe I'm going to hang in breaks and wait for this inconsiderate person to pass <laughs> me because that's easier. So, yeah, I, I, th- I think about all that stuff. But I find myself, uh, even as a, a pilot, doing that unconsciously as I'm pulling up to pick up the load, I'm looking at the composition of it and figuring out how it's going to string itself out on <laughs> jump run and what I'm going to be dealing with on landing and, and where I should be looking for the parachutes as I'm coming down and, and that like sort of thing. Like this big big belly way of old guys going to try and stall your airplane and all, all of us videographers are going to give ourselves a two-mile spot. Yep. Perfect. Yep. I, I, lo- I look <laughs> for all those things. Yeah. So. Um, now, not, not all jump pilots can do that. Not all jump pilots are skydivers. Mm-hmm. So going back to the aircraft thing, like like that's why we, ha- we asked the larger groups, I'd say bigger than 10, to, to let the loader know so that the loader can indicate to the pilot, oh, you're going to have a heavy climb out, that sort of thing. I was uh, free fall safety, right? I was, yeah. uh, the other day we were doing a jump, 
and we were far away from the drop zone, and so I tracked back to the drop zone to make sure I made it back better, right? Is that is that how that goes? Yeah. <laughs> You're a fucking jackass. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> and I'm I not sure that works. <laughs> I had this very same <laughs> thought when I had, it was my first time jumping at a new drop zone. It was a bad spot. They weren't using GPS. Old school pilot who was looking out the left window who had us, <laughs> I mean, if he was looking out that left window, he saw the drop zone. Yeah, it's great, but that means that we're not right over top of it, right? And so, uh, two-way with a buddy, I, I had probably 40 jumps <laughs> and no coach rating, and he didn't have a license yet, so we were absolutely breaking the rules. I didn't even know I was breaking the I rules. That's the how same. little I knew about them. Yeah. And uh, we got out. I think he had 15 jumps. He was spinning like a top. He pulled early because that's all he could do, and I started doing whatever I thought was cool. I probably did some flips and shit, rolled over, looked for the drop zone, seven grand. I don't see the drop zone. I don't see the drop zone. I don't see the drop zone. Six grand. I see the drop zone really far away. I start tracking back to it. <laughs> so luckily, Cause I you wasn't... Can, you can out-track the glide ratio of <laughs> your yeah, parachute. fucking retard. <laughs> Absolutely. Didn't, didn't have this thought at this did point. Did you have one of them squirrel suits on? <laughs> no, I did not have one of them squirrel suits. But luckily, I, luckily I wasn't tracking... Um, up the line of flight because yeah. we were off laterally, not yeah. not short or long, and uh, so it could have could have been a dumber move. But then I I did pitch at five grand and just barely made it back. I think I, uh, you and I, are th- uh, I'm thinking of the same skydive you're you're talking about, and I I believe on that one I call I was on it with you and I called an audible and uh, found my space and. But I noted in no, I don't remember what you're talking about. I now that you say that, I think oh, yeah. I remember what you're talking about. Yeah. But no, I was just I hear that all the time, yeah. so I wanted to bring it up. So yeah. we c- we can mention the Mark Fields jump, his memorial jump. Yeah, there's a, a really lovely video out there by yours truly. Well done, yeah. thank you. I um, cried, I cried a lot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Well. Man, we say shit a lot at the same time on this yeah. show. <laughs> so. Rabbit was uh, kind enough to give us some extra altitude, which I think uh, gave us a little bit more free fall drift, drift yeah. than, than we were uh, oh. expecting. And uh, we were just, we had an efficient climb out, which yeah. is rare for the first big belly group out of uh, out of the plane, right? We climbed out like we meant it. Yeah. yeah. So we were a little short. And yeah. uh, I barely made it back. Yeah, I remember uh, the exit, being concerned about the exit, sticking that once we stuck that. Setting the fall rate, and then my next thing was I looked down and I was like, "Okay, that's gonna be fun." Yeah, I'm I'm normally very hyper aware of the spot. Yeah. Um, on this jump, I just trusted everybody else because I was watching to make sure I knew where I was gonna be at. And when I opened up, I looked down and went, "I don't know if I'm gonna." I I <laughs> like I pitched it like four or five. Yeah. No, no, six six grand. I pitched it like six grand. I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna make it back. Yeah. Um, so. That that I track back to the drop zone. First of all, you're tracking at another group who may or may not have drifted. You may or may not have drifted, uh, and yeah. you're going to open into each other. That's possible. What were you about to say, Nick? Oh, I was going to say uh, there's about a fifty percent chance, right? Just depends on if you're if For you're sure. off short or long, or if you're off laterally, which might happen. I mean. In Texas, we have uh, some isolated thunderstorms, and it's really easy to go around them a lot of the time and be totally safe in doing that, but you might be offset a little bit to, to be within the, the cloud clearances. Yeah. yeah. And if you aren't aware that that's a thing and you didn't look at the spot when you climbed out and you're not paying attention to what direction the airplane's flying, and now you look down for the first time at you know whatever fill-in-the-blank altitude and decide you're too far. Yeah. I want to uh, 
come back and remind me. Let's talk about looking at the spot and uh, separation. That's one of the other goals with this conversation. But I'll go back to what JP said, and JP will maybe know this answer. So, Justin, I have 500 skydives. In 500 skydives, I am now going to get out of a four-way jump, and I'm going to track for 1,000 feet breakoff uh, on a belly group or 1,500 feet breakoff on a free fly group. I've measured a bunch of these on a fly site, so I actually have this information recorded. How far is this person going to track? Is this person Helene? <laughs> no, because she will smoke you because like I Cheech remember that and a she was bomb. she was almost one to one. One point one five sustained track. She she went one thousand one hundred and fifty feet forward for every one thousand foot she dropped. Um, dude, eight hundred ish. 800-ish uh, feet is what that person's going to average. So you're going to go 800 feet in 1,000 foot of drop. So 0.8 roughly. Under canopy, how far am I going to glide in that same 1,000 feet of descent? Oh, I'm trying to remember now. Uh, a 3.5 glide ratio, Nick. right? 3,500 I'm ashamed feet. to say that I don't know. I think it's around 3 to 1. It's, yeah, 2.5 to 3, depending on the canopy. Two and, and, and that's a 3. Worst case scenario. Yeah. That's I just worst sat case in scenario. your course, too. Yeah, you also <laughs> were in the background building a computer building for a computer, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he walked into a canopy course. He's like, I'm going to sit and learn this canopy course. Bro, the computer's blowing up. <laughs> you need to figure out. I was there to jump. I was just bored. <laughs> By the way, uh, guys and gals, if you are in the computer business and you own a computer company, you build computers, and you want to build a business relationship with a rating center, not the rating center, uh, Option Studios. No, not Option Studios. What is it? Gravity Lab Radio. That's who I am. <laughs> It's on my shirt. Yeah, Jesus <laughs> Christ, man. Um, if you want to build a relationship with Gravity Lab Radio, uh, I, re- I promise you we'll have much better advertisements for you than that. Uh, we do need a new <laughs> computer. Uh, I have a lot of the specs and things I know and I now need to understand. Uh, we need a lot of processing power and a lot of video power. So uh, give me a holler. Give me a call. Let's set something up. Nick needs a new computer. We can build more than one at a time. Uh, JP might need a new uh, pilot rig. So if you're in the market <laughs> for pilot rigs, <laughs> like build build JP a pilot rig would be super awesome. Um, uh, man, yeah, you're going to go two and a half minimum for everyone, man. You're, you're not going to track back better than you're going to fly your canopy back. Fly your canopy si- or track sideways so you're not at a group. Open up your canopy, and you'll more than make up that distance. If you can barely make it back because you tracked, you probably should have landed off anyways. And just an important thing to, to note, and I think this is important, uh, or a great habit to make on every skydive, is uh, regardless of when you open your parachute, that it's a great idea to find the group that left before and after you and see where they are before you start moving uh, back towards the drop zone. If that, if that group before you was up the line of flight, you obviously don't want to... You don't want to close the gap, but just just to get closer to the drop zone, right? Yeah, to give you a realistic example, uh, you and I are free flying, and JP and Justin are belly flying, which will probably match our free fly speeds. Um, <laughs> oh, Rude. shit, burn. Uh, no, but belly flyers fall slower than free flyers. We're going to open sooner than them. We're going to open our canopy, fly straight back to the DZ as they fall to us. And then we've seen that happen on multiple occasions. Uh, a buddy of mine and I in California would track opposite directions. We were always good about breaking off cross jump run. And then we would fly our canopies back across jump run, not towards the drop zone, but to meet each other back up and then to fly our canopies back together. And twice on the same weekend, we actually watched somebody fall between where we would have been. Oh, so getting off a jump run, man, it's 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 the safest place to go. It really, it's perpendicular it is you know something we didn't bring up in the um the the group setting is if if you have a certain size group you should definitely give more exit separation because why 
they have no choice but to track up and down jump run to be safe with their group. So now you need to have that extra delay uh, to prevent their track from getting into your airspace or you jumping into their airspace, technically. Also, they're going to track longer. Radials, think of, uh, of the spokes. They're probably going to break off sooner and track further. And they're going to track longer because their radials are tighter and they're going to have to go further, like you said, track longer. So they're going to come at you further. Come at me, bro. Come at me. <laughs> that mustache is coming at me. It's, it's <laughs> it hovers like when the mic's just right. It's like the mic has a moustache. So yeah. It worked for Tom Selleck. Uh, That's all I'm saying, dude. Wear some short <laughs> shorts, bro, and you're gonna borrow Nick's shorts, and you're Euro gonna go. Hawaii. God, I, I had sorry. I'm just because you brought up short shorts. I gotta fucking talk about it. I <laughs> got <laughs> trapped in a fucking short shorts wormhole the other day. God, I don't even remember the name of this uh, this company, but I had filled up my. Uh, a my lot of inappropriate things went through my head when you said short shorts wormhole. <laughs> <laughs> Man after my own heart. But I did not throw away the two hundred dollars on uh, several pairs of short shorts that I had planned on. I had that moment of clarity of like, man, what the fuck am I doing buying shit <laughs> on the internet late at night? <laughs> and uh, disaster averted. But God, I love short shorts. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm totally aware that I just ruined the conversation talking about short shorts. But but please continue. You did not. I a- absolutely enjoyed that. Short. <laughs> what the fuck is? I love short shorts, man. I love them. I love how excited you are about it. So wait, are we talking <laughs> like 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 tight fin booty shorts, or are we talking yeah, like like yeah. ran- <laughs> Ranger silkies? Uh, Ranger length. <laughs> okay. Little tighter. Like bike, like spandex okay. bike shorts. Extra small women's running shorts are my fucking jam. Okay. <laughs> okay, <laughs> world. Yeah. That's the sort of shit yeah, okay. I'm into. Cool. Yeah. But now uh, wait a minute. I'm not judging. These, but these I'm were. Judging. These were men's shorts of an equivalent length, and like if I buy men's extra small running shorts, they're like I have decent sized thighs, and still they're just too loose and baggy. I just don't like it. I don't like any baggy clothes because it makes me feel smaller than I already am, right? So I liked the uh, tight fit of these of these shorts, and man, these guys' uh, legs I'm were fucking jacked. I'm I'm gonna re- <laughs> I'm gonna regret this, but but. <laughs> how how is the the bulge handled? You know, oh, I didn't like even, dude. I wasn't even looking at the bulge. I was so distracted by these guys' thighs and calves. <laughs> I, I wasn't even aware that dicks were a thing anymore. Wow. Thinking, oh God, thinking about wormholes. Oh, he's, he's so strong. Look how veiny his calves are. Shit. I bet he works out. Shit. Dude, homeboys fucking lift for really real. And man, they got those genetics. God damn. <laughs> <laughs> He's a hundred percent sold. But I, f- <laughs> I started following this company on Instagram. So, sure as shit, one day I will make the bad decision of wasting money on those short shorts. So I'll let you know when I get them. All right. Mm, I don't feel bad about <coughs> buying gaming headsets now, Jesus. <laughs> Man, <laughs> I uh, uh, that stupid new gaming headset I got yeah. has a, a flip up mic that if you flip it up, it mutes it. And you roll it back down and unmute oh, it. Oh shit, dude! There's been more than once when I push my mic away, and then instead of pulling my mic back, I went to flip it down. <laughs> oh, it's an I. I get yeah. you. Mike, I've been uh, yeah. The stupid keep me up till three. You in the morning. should plug it. Can you plug it into this? Or is it Bluetooth only? <sighs> does it have the qu- does <laughs> it, it have the quality only. for this too? It's Bluetooth only. Why, why should I plug this into that? <laughs> because that would be hilarious to have you sitting right here flipping your stupid <laughs> thing up and down. I would just really like that. Oh, no, I can't plug the headset. The headset won't trip. Yeah, we're gonna, I can't. We're going to figure it out. 
I actually can tr- I can plug the headset wirelessly into that computer. Okay. And then patch that signal through the computer channel. Sure. So, yeah. It would also be entertaining if you just like went up in somebody's face and just talked to him on the microphone. Just <laughs> 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 awkwardly close. Dude, Bill. Were you wear it at safety day <laughs> for your presentations? No. <laughs> Bill Doss. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Bill Doss would go up at Lodi with his wireless mic and walk up right behind somebody. I mean, like just stand a foot from him and on the wireless mic page him. Nick Lott, you're on the board in Area 5, whatever it was. <laughs> he would just say your name and tell you what you needed to know and announce it through the whole PA right at the back of your head. Hey, JP, if you see DJ, will you let him know that I've already heard this story before? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I realized that halfway through. Fuck you. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just doing another Bill Dawes. I got another it. Bill, Bill, no, Bill no, Dawes move. We, we got it, Kyle. We got it. Um, Who's Kyle? Kyle, that is from uh, Road Trip because it's your dog. Lost. Fully <laughs> lost. Okay, back yeah. to uh, what safety? Did um, you keep up with me? I can't quote the same movie no. as you guys. Fuck you. I know I know that movie and I didn't spotting. Get it. Jo- uh, Justin had talked on exit separation spotting yes. and and I I I profess to have an old school view on it. Like like I'll say I've never needed to know ground speed in 20 years to get safely out of an airplane and I don't completely object to providing that information and jumpers utilizing that information although I hate it when they just scream it in my ear. I'd rather they were polite <laughs> about it. But the 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 thing I, I'm I don't like about that method is it seems to have diminished the amount people study their environment. And by that I mean look out the door. Look at what that group's doing ahead of you. Look at where the spot is. Look at the you know those things. Or know it, what the uppers are before you get on the plane. Right. And and w- and and what we've evolved to is is couple generations of jumpers that I call light stairs, you know. Or, or finger counters, you know, literally, the, the, like, oh, that group left, okay. Oh, uh, I guess we can get out now, you know, like, it's not bad to have that information and utilize it to create an exit separation, but also use your your situational observational skills to to experience the environment and, and gain some experience and information from that. So I agree with both sides of this argument. Yeah. That you, you should, if you're going to know ground speed, you should have that information in your head. You should be counting, and you should be developing a mental picture of what your proper separation Precisely. looks like yeah. so that when you go to a drop zone that doesn't give you this information or the pilot's too busy talking to ATC to give you this information or whatever, that you're not going to be up shit's crick because you yeah. didn't hear the number, right? Yeah. At, the, at the same time, <coughs> I've been on jump runs that go from 40 knots at the beginning of jump run to 110 knots at the end of jump run, yeah. and that's really good information yeah. to know. Yeah, or, or or the opposite is more likely, uh, especially in, in the caravans, because as they get lighter, they fly so much slower. So the, the beginning of jump run might be 110 knots, but the end of jump run 70, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that's Or, or that's if you're doing a banking jump run that's moving more into those yep. upper winds, yep. yeah, that's all great infor- information to have. And being a, let's say that I'm uh, a free fly group, and the first group out is an, ang- is an angle group who's going to do a 270 under the airplane, they're actually tracking up the line of flight sure. for a moment, and then they're going to do their 270 and go the other way. And it's really hard to... If that group does what they say they're going to do, we're going to be really far apart by the time it comes to open a parachute. Yeah. But when I see this four-way angle group of a bunch of shitheads that I don't trust, <laughs> and they're going right up the line of flight, yeah. like it's really hard to make myself climb out when yeah. I see that group of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not... Not to call them idiots, but people that I know are doing a thing that's probably a little bit out of their, you know, out of their skill set. I don't really want to climb out until I see that group moving away from 
from where I'm going to be. And so, and that's and it, but it, but it is helpful to have that that ground speed number of like, yeah. hey, okay, at least I know what sort of distance we're getting in this time. Yeah, and and not to to harp on it, but the the I'm I embrace technology and the the safe utilization of it, but there's always as we add more, you know, we we see the example in in normal society, you know, people who who get one of the auto drive cars and and then take a nap while they're on the highway, you know. <laughs> That, oh, that's you mean a, geniuses? That's an actual thing that 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 I just saw in the news the other day. Um, one extension of this is there's uh, there's softwares out there that now take the uh, the forecast, the wind, upper winds, and then graphically display what the projected spot will be and what the area you can make it back from. One I can think Are of. Are you talking about spot assist? I can think of spot assist. I think there's there's probably been others created, but I've now seen a culture at a drop zone where if spot assist isn't working, people are completely lost. And people look at spot assist, and that's the end-all be-all, right? That's, oh, well, okay, well, i got to get out within that circle. Well, what they're forgetting is, is especially on the first low of the day, spot assist is just using the same data I'm going to look at, that which is just a forecast, an estimation of what the uppers are going to be. And quite frequently... They're wrong. Yeah. So they're looking at this yeah. like this is gospel, and I'm like, look at the real <laughs> world. And spot assist doesn't feel the plane fighting into the upper winds yeah. that, are, <laughs> that if you're, you're if feeling? If you ever feel the airplane doing a 360-degree turn on the climbed altitude on the first load of the day, I'm looking at ground speeds. I'm checking the forecast against what reality is. You know, How fast am I going in each direction? Yeah. yeah. And I'm going, well, that forecast is wrong, and the uppers clearly are coming out of a different direction. Definitely can't come. Man, Spot Assist is absolutely a dynamite program. It's fantastic. They actually just won an award for uh, what they do. Uh, but you can't always rely on them. We've actually used the, the cutaway finder to proactively decide cutaway spots to find where we're cutting away from. And granted, some of it is is our exact spot isn't where we try to be, but where the canopy is going compared to where we thought it would go has not been remotely near right either with some of these forecasts. <laughs> We're 0 for 6. <laughs> really? No, it's, so it's not just 0 for 6. It's like, dude, that's fucking two miles away, bro. Yeah. yeah I th- so. <laughs> How so do they factor that into like a canopy that's partially inflated? Yeah, I think that that's, 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 the, big, the, yeah. that's yeah. the big difference yeah. is that the canopy is so inflated and flying so well that when you cut it away, it stays, it keeps the shape. It keeps gliding, yeah. And uh, w- when we find them on the ground, they're, they're pretty they're pretty stretched out. It's not the the bundle that you the tangled bundle that you usually see from a malfunctioning canopy. I've got a picture of a canopy <laughs> looked like it spread out almost perfectly. Like when we picked it up, it was almost no untangling. It it just flew basically to where it touched do, down. Do you, do, I don't think I've seen anybody do it for a decade, but do you remember in the crew world something called a ghost plane? Yeah. Yeah. Where where they used to create a uh, a stack and then plane it, meaning meaning oh, the person yeah. come down. You're talking and about ghost riding the whip is what the kids. <laughs> <were saying>. Yeah, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but, uh, they But they put their feet in the V of the risers, and then the bottom person had cut away, and now this guy's flying an empty canopy. Yeah, yeah, yeah man, ghost plane. <laughs> There's actually one done here in uh, Houston at some point. Uh, Spaceland uh, da, 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 demo was in the yeah. on that demo. Bartstone Street. Pete Ritzu. Do you know Pete Ritzu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, I don't know if you. I showed up the day they did that. Not not that, but the day Pete. Hey, watch this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know he's back to jumping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, super good years, dude, yeah. man. 
It's, I, I got a lot of love and respect for Pete, but it was uh, the basic story goes: a buddy of ours does a low turn unintentionally uh, to get back in the wind, impacts, hurts himself. Doing crew is ultimately what led to it. Him and uh, the next day, a couple of his buddies shoot a video. And go, hey, this is how it's done, and do the exact same accident yep. in the exact same place. Yep. And I'm man by. Pretty sure we had a moratorium on crew for several years because of that. Oh, dude. And to this day, crew at Spaceland is supposed to be approved um, on a case-by-case basis. And that case-by-case basis, for example, in San Marcos, uh, the drop zone is given a couple guys clearance. Like, yeah, dude, if you said they can do crew, let them do crew. Because the community is governing itself well. Um, uh, We'll kind of go back to this exit separation. And I'm a huge advocate and fan of more information and more knowledge to empower you, not not to uh, trap you. So use this for knowledge. And one of the things that I would challenge jumpers to do is, is A, dirt dive or mock up your exits. Just because you're going to get a better exit, it can be fun, it can be cool. But one of the things that was nice about when we mocked up our exits and our skydive for uh, 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 Mark's jump is everybody knew their shit when it comes to skydiving. Everybody, we, we had a bunch of players on the game uh, in the game. Um, even the guy with 150 jumps was full-time skydiving. He's our AMP, super good dude. So we're all aware. We mocked it up, and dude, I don't know if you noticed, Nick, because you were front float. The climb out in our mock-up versus the climb out on the real jump was almost identical in timing. And I don't know if you know this or knew this. You probably don't. When we're mocking up the skydive, I'm actually timing my the whole thing. When the first guy goes out, I'm just timing. I, I know that you're constantly counting. I yeah. Know that. Yeah, I do. I, I count every fucking thing in the world, man. I'm Asian. Dude. We, we count shit, man. Um, and when you're skydiving, do that, A, to find out how long your group climb out is. So when you're in the plane and you hear the pilot say, 85, uh, 85 ground speed, and somebody looks at you and says six or seven knots, whatever uh, people want to call it at their drop zone, or six or seven seconds, sorry, uh, you know, well, our climb out takes seven seconds, so we can immediately climb out. While you're climbing out, even in the mock-up, dude, I climb out and I look down in the mock-up. I actually checked our spot in the mock-up at some point when we dirt dove. I just didn't check our spot on the actual climb out of the skydive, which, uh, you know, you're not always going to be able to do that. Um, I sh- still should have in that case. Um want to change anything that we did. But check that spot. Look around. Become aware. We teach and we preach with canopy, and we'll talk about this in a minute, vertical separation. But the thing we forget to talk about, and I think we mentioned last week, was vertical awareness has to come beco- before vertical separation becomes a thing. As experienced jumpers, let's be patient to understand that they've got to build exit separation awareness before they can even build exit separation management. So, A, let's be patient and guide them and direct them and realize their awareness isn't there to manage them themselves and and help them and and help them understand to, to manage their awareness first. And then as new jumpers, don't sit there and just listen to what we do, man, what JP does, what Justin does on a climb out. Man, I expect top level shit from these guys. You're going to get out and you're just going to start becoming aware. Oh, when JP yelled 85 knots on ground speed and I looked down, we're going pretty quick. Okay, that's quick. All right. Man, today JP yelled 50. Oh, wow, man. We're going slow. Okay. Just start uh, collecting data and that awareness will grow and that awareness grows. <sighs> Your management will become will come super, super easy. I don't jump nearly as often as you guys and I can, I can feel the difference between 80 and 110 knots. 100%. Yeah, you uh, you're still a very aware skydiver. You're you're 
a part-time skydiver, but uh, still a very aware, very active skydiver. So I, I went undersell yourself. I'll undersell you for you. <laughs> you suck. On like <laughs> going back to J- what JP was saying, I I I think about the same things. Like as we're climbing, as we're turning, I can feel the differences in speed and expect that uh, it's going to be so fast when we're here, or um, you know maybe the upper shifted a little bit from from what they were earlier. Uh, and I'm also when I'm on the ground, I'm watching where people are opening, uh, where they're heading to, because you can see the the shifts throughout the day. You know, it's well, it, in the summer here, the wind shifts so much. Spotting, sh- uh, spotting, and the the whole art of of that I think happens the moment you step onto the drop zone. So if you pull up on the drop zone, load threes in the air, and you you just watch them, you go, okay, well that looks good. Then on the way up, you know, you look out the window once in a while and you see how the airplane's moving over the ground. And yeah, that's not something you get magically handed to you on jump 25 when they stamp your forehead uh, it's something you build over a lifetime of jumping but it, it only happens i think if you discipline yourself to to be situationally aware right yeah yeah i mean, I mean you can totally feel the difference when you you know when you're setting up on jump run and the plane rocks back you know how drastic is that slowdown yeah i i always it it, it just i just giggle when when and yeah, I get it, you know, they're new, they don't get it, but you know, when I'm on like my downwind to base to jump run and somebody I'm on that downwind at nine thousand feet and somebody goes, What's ground speed? I'm like <laughs> And I'll at this point I'll A just lot. be like hundred and twenty five. <laughs> yeah. Man, how would you feel if you're in the middle of your pattern and somebody starts talking to you? Yeah. Nick? Yeah, it's kind of cool, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is actually really fun. <laughs> We've been wearing these air comms, and really, like, he's talking me through his turn. I'm setting up. I'm on my Dude, base I leg, try that so much. and he's telling me, "People are watching, bro. Don't fuck up." I'm I like, fuck yeah. I mean, I mean, don't fuck it up. And on that point, I gotta say, it's probably a silly thing, but you know, I spend all day in the front of the airplane. I don't get to talk yeah. to people a whole lot. So when I get the from whoever that I don't even know sitting over here, it just goes ground speed. I'm like. Do you walk into a restaurant and that's how you order food? You're like, cheeseburger. <laughs> no, food, you, bitch. You're like, hey, can, can I please have a cheeseburger? I'm not saying people got to, you know, yeah. blow sunshine at my ass, but go, hey, ground speed, please. You, you know, if you can't see it yourself, if yeah. I'm talking on, you know, like I'm, I'm talking to ATC, you know, just a, I, a little thing. I think thing. that we do... Uh, amongst the staff do a pretty good job of yeah. someone sitting in that seat is going to try and spot it. Yeah. And depending on, you know, I'm not as old as some people in this room. My eyes are a little sharper. Well, and I, I, can't, I can't always see I it. can see far away, bitch. I will tell you that <laughs> as <laughs> all, all the aircraft are currently going through avionics upgrades, so that information is going to be even more prevalent and easier to see. Um, as we get all this new gear in the airplanes, you guys, you know, will point it out where it is. But, but I, I think that this group here does a fantastic job of disseminating that information amongst themselves without putting that workload on the pilot. And if I hear that stupid question at nine grand from yeah. a person of regardless <laughs> of their experience yeah. level, yeah. I'm still going to say, hey, hey, w- we don't know right now because yeah. we're not on jump run. Yeah. So when we're on jump run, we're going to let you know. And on the last load. It was 90, yeah. so it's likely to be around 90. Yeah, yeah so that's the other thing I feel like people don't do enough of is ask the people that just landed. Yeah. What was ground speed? <laughs> it's, 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 the, uh, it's the new version of the question we used to get, which was they'd get on the airplane, and just about the time you're, you're going to put the power in to take off, they'd be like, hey, what are the uppers doing? <laughs> They're blowing, brah. Really? 
So we have two more topics we need to hit, and we're running out of time. So I have two more questions or two more things before thought, we wrap up. Free I thought fall. we had like eight hours for this thing. No, we don't. <laughs> uh, number one, tic tac me. That's the question. Number, <laughs> number two, what's ground speed? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I could help myself. Uh, um, uh, canopy safety. Oh my God, uh, we could we could do all day just on canopy safety. We could do forever on that. I can make a few a few points. Uh, bring it. Stop turning. Thank you. Really excellent article. Did Brian Burke write this article? The NBC. The NBC. Yeah. yeah. I know it was in uh, Parachutes, Parachutes a while back. Stop turning. I'm sure you can find it online really easily. But uh, it makes you a much uh, better canopy pilot. The more that you work on doing the, f- the, the fewest turns that you can do, the better you're going to get at setting up your pattern, the better your accuracy is going to get, the more predictable you're going to get, the less likely you are to get into... Uh, a canopy collision, safer you're going to be, and uh, your friends will hate you less because they're going to know what the fuck you're doing. I think we've done a fantastic job in the industry, not just at the Spacelands, but in the industry of of deciding that, that not all canopies are compatible, and so we've separated uh, by time or space mm-hmm. where people can do certain things. I know uh, most of the drops ones I fly have separate high performance, separate student. Yeah, that's a yeah. USPA group member pledge, yeah. is it not? Hodger. But, uh, hey, spiraling your canopy is super fun, right? On a hop and pop. Do that shit on a hop and pop. Yeah. I don't care. Like, I, I hear this argued of like, oh, well, if you're not over the pattern or whatever, uh, it's okay to spiral. It's like, no, 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 it's <laughs> not. Because you know what you're going to do when you do that spiral? You're going to lose track of everybody. And everybody who saw you checked in with this canopy before it started spiraling, and now they look away for the you know five to ten seconds while they're checking the rest of the sky. Now you're in a totally different place, and uh, why do that to everybody? So uh, be predictable and, and don't don't do spirals. Stop turning, JP. What canopy? Huh? Huh? What? Fly canopy. I'm, I'm old. I just got a new big canopy. What'd you get? I got a Storm 150. Man, dude, when I first met you, you were on something cross brace, and then you upsized to a stiletto. Uh, yeah, I might. Well, when I was competing, my regulars were an 88, a 93, and a 98. I jumped as small as a 68, um, which back then they weren't near the technology and canopies. That no. Now, now, now the top canopy pilots are regularly flying a three and a half wing loading. It's crazy. And they're fucking smoking. The wing's so much more efficient. I so want to be on one of those, but I don't maintain a level of currency to to make that to be s- a smart idea. Yeah, dude, I don't think I've ever jumped uh, above a two point five. Yeah, I forget a sixty eight for you is like nothing. I mean, just you're you're what, a what sixty eight were you on? What canopy? It was a chaos. <laughs> yeah, I, yours I, I still have I still yeah. have a sixty eight chaos yeah. in my closet. Yeah, but what but else is in your closet? Uh, me. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, <laughs> and I still have my my one twenty, and I would go jump a cross race if it was available to me now, and I was maintaining that level of of currency, but I'm just not so. The 150 made sense this year. Man, under canopy, uh, stop turning. You, you hear us talk about that topic all the time, but awareness is a topic that we also can't hit enough. Take your time to look around. Uh, Nick really kind of got into this uh, in the free fall section. When you open up before you go anywhere, make sure you can account for, uh, at a minimum, the group in front of you. I would, I do prefer the group in front of you and the group behind you. But as new jumpers go, man, I'm super stoked. If I'm you, that I can know where all my three-way is and all the four-way in front of me is. If it, and don't be obsessed at that. Just know it. The culture seems to be doing a much better job of, of planning and integrating themselves into, into traffic versus, 
oh, everybody just do your thing and then all arrive at once, which crowds landing area. So, yeah, I do see a much, much better approach to that. So, yeah, but it starts from knowing what the load is and knowing what you're going to expect to see out there. You know, it's going to be six tandems. They're probably not an issue for me as a fun jumper, but I got to look out for their videographers. So I'm going to keep out, keep an eye out for them, you know, that sort of thing. So we go from a 70 some odd percent fatality rate. In other words, 70 some odd percent of U.S. fatalities in skydiving are canopy related. Canopy collision, intentional low turns, unintentional low turns. Down to the 50 ish percent range. Down to 20, like there were three years in a row that was 24 or 25 percent. Down to 8 percent. Why are we safer under canopy? There's more skydives going on. Why are there less fatalities? I think, without a doubt, it's education. I mean, we, we mandated that there's actually a canopy control course. Um, to, to go into the history of it, I think I think generationally, AFF instructors got worse and worse and worse and worse at teaching canopy flight because their focus was on free fall. Even the evaluation course was all about mm -hmm. keeping them safe in free fall, teaching free fall, and there was so little focus on canopy flight that the next generation got a little less, the next generation, they're the people teaching it. And so we got to that bad point, and then we started mandating for, for B license and whatnot that we're going to do education. We're going to require it. And then it became hip to go seek more education and learn from professionals. And that's now turned around and I think made the instructional staff better at it because they've come through those generations of now we teach canopy flight as its own thing. I think you're basically nail on the head right there. And what's interesting is today, if you're skydiving today, if you have 100 skydives and you learned to jump in the last three years, and your AFF instructor started skydiving in the early 2000s, there's a chance you understand how canopies fly better than he does. Yeah. Uh, three, five years <laughs> ago, make that same statement, except for it's going to be so much more true because with... So USPA didn't make a canopy course necessarily a requirement. They made a canopy proficiency card, right. which ideally is, is uh, handled through a course. Um, it really is the optimal way, uh, all the information to get out there and the power of, of that. Um, they made it mandatory in 2012, and we didn't see the immediate impact. And, of course, you, you've got to have some time. You've got to have some things set into stone. And then we saw a bit of an impact, and we saw those numbers lower dramatically. But I think the difference is, and, and you hit the nail on the head, is those were required. And now today's instructors, Justin Grubbs, you're an AFF instructor. Yes, sir. Have you taken a canopy course? I have. And uh, before you became <coughs> an instructor, right? Yes. And that has become the norm. So I, I, I don't know how many coach courses. In, in coach courses, we argued at USPA standardization meeting that coaches can or cannot teach basic fundamental canopy control on coach-level jumps. You can't teach it in certain things. Man, I can, as a coach, teach in the first jump course how to fly and land a parachute. But as a USPA coach, I can't go up on a swoop to dock skydive, an upper level coach jump, and teach you the canopy skill set. I really, I, I, I think we're still at a point where where anybody who's highly experienced and has a certain knowledge set can share that with lower experienced people if they seek it. But what what the <coughs> what the canopy proficiency uh, program and the subsequent courses I think have done have have now made it cool for people to go seek out coaching. And I'm not talking about just at the top level mm -hmm. who are, you know, pants on fire, swooping pawns, but people who are just struggling to learn or just want to improve, even after they've gotten the proficiency card out of the way, I see them around the country seeking out one-on-one -on -one coaching or seeking out an advanced level canopy course. 
just to become better. They, they, it's now a thing to learn. It's not just the end of the skydive, how I get to the ground. The majority of my private canopy coaching for years was high performance only. Um, I, I didn't do tons of it because it's limited to the number of people who are available to, to want that coaching. And commonly at that point, people are too egotistical, arrogant, or cheap to get that coaching. Uh, today, man, that number's increased. The number of those high-performance guys is more. Uh, there's guys booking two or three sessions at a time. Uh, but my God, the number of people who it's intermediate, it's basics, it's fundamentals, it's even some of the early advanced stuff. People, it's in vogue. Get coaching. And that's the thing I would say for safety, canopy safety, get more coaching. We practice and we dirt dive skydiving freefall because it's the cool, fun part. How often does somebody get hurt in freefall? It happens, but it's not often. How often does somebody get hurt under parachute? Way more often. I'm not going to go fate fatal because obviously we've gotten better at that, but way more often we get hurt. Why aren't we practicing again coaching on the important part and why are we focusing only on the fun part? Now, for me, canopy is the fun part. Yeah. So Greg Winmiller runs Superior Flight Solutions. Flight One, man, if you don't know who they are, Google Flight One uh, Parachute, and if you can't figure it out, you don't deserve to anyways. Uh, Alter Ego Fast Tracks Project, they work together. It's, it's uh, two teams have come together. Uh, the Rating Center, we run canopy courses. There's all sorts of people like that out there. Uh, go find coaching. And, and most drop zones have a local resource of somebody who's, For sure. who's got that knowledge and, and is willing to share it in a constructive format that... that, that caters to the student right uh, you know when when we grew up in the sport you know if you couldn't figure it out they people's ability to teach it wasn't that great yeah but i think i think the resources and the knowledge out there and the way it's being shared is fantastic now so so it's it's an absolutely awesome resource go out and do uh and with that coaching that that homegrown coaching don't get stuck with one coach, man. I uh, I work with different buddies who I do the majority of their coaching, but they regularly go see some other really huge, good, big-name coaches. And I love it because sometimes they'll come back and they're like, hey, man, what you taught me here is is this is what I learned different or this is how I said it to make sense to me. Or uh, there's been times where I don't get as much coaching anymore, so I'm out of date sometimes. And like, hey, man. No, I'm, we're learning, I'm learning something new. And now I'm like, hey, well, I got to go research. I got to go talk to some buddies. I got to go. I didn't know this was changing. Getting that coaching from outside is valuable for you, but it's valuable for your coaches as well. And, man, I, I love it when somebody comes back and says, man, I like the way you said it, but this works better for me, and now I have to learn to coach you differently. Man, I, I believe it or not, a lot of coaches thrive off being able to do that. Well, and I think also the art of the self-debrief, like not just to, to not just stop the thought process of, oh, I hated that landing, that sucked, you know, I hurt my ankle. Like really self-evaluate, and that takes some tools, that takes working with somebody to, to figure out how to debrief a, a canopy flight, but always debriefing your canopy flight to see how you can do better, see, see what you can do better, even if you don't have coaching at that moment. And pay attention when others are getting debriefed. Don't just think about yourself. Oh, watch Pick up on everything yeah, else. Just watching landings and, <laughs> and starting to correlate, you know, oh, well, why did that one go bad? Why did that person fall down? What? Where were their hands when their feet touched the ground? You know, that sort of stuff. Get, do more hop and pops. Uh, number one, I skydive for me. Um, I don't skydive for you. I don't skydive for my wife. I don't skydive for anybody. I do it for me, man. And I really actually enjoy skydiving. I skydive for Nick and his booty shorts and, and I'm, gonna wear, I'm gonna wear them for you and nick you said hey man like i'm bored i want to go do a solo i don't want to go do a solo and all my friends are doing something else 
Well, bail on that solo free fly jump and go do a solo hop and pop because there is a place that it's A, legitimately safe to do a solo, and B, it's actually probably the safest place to be because there's a lot less people. Now you can push the limits of your canopy because spiraling A is fun. If spiraling is not fun for you, it's okay. You're a girl. Um, not really <laughs> a girl because women can enjoy that as well. There's a difference between a lady and a woman. And a girl, you're a girl. Um, <laughs> JP had just hurt his brain. I just broke his brain. So sexist. Isn't it International that. Women's Day today or something? Is it really? I think so. But it's not International Girls' Day because you're a girl. Not a woman or a lady. I respect them. We're but so in trouble. Spiraling because you're going to have fun. That's super cool. I really enjoy it. Do it on Hop and Pop. But also spiraling to put your canopy to its limitation. If I see Nick coming at me across the sky and I need to whip hard 180, I really should be comfortable with that sensation, with that feeling when my canopy gets G'd up. Because if I'm not familiar with that feeling, if I, that's something I don't know well, when I do it, I'm going to get stressed. Good stress or bad stress. Everything's going to heighten my heart rate, my senses, everything. And now things don't happen normally. I don't react normally. Now I react emotionally. So I want to do spirals here and there. I want to whip out a couple hard turns under canopy. So when I have to whip out a hard turn because I see Nick, I am in a calm mindset. I'm in a calm state of mind, and, and my ego goes comfortably where I need it to. Lately, when you see Nick, you cut away. Oh, God dang, <laughs> he's too close to me. Fuck this guy, <laughs> Nick. Nick, more close. Man, I we we're talking far enough to where I'm like closing my visors. Do you know why I tell you I'm closing my visor? Because uh, you're real good at talking. No, because it makes that laugh. <laughs> Does it? I don't want to go clunk to you. Have oh, you noticed? Yeah, I, I haven't noticed the, the the clunk sound. I try to close it softly. I don't know. You closed your visor one day without thinking about it. I forget what was going on. And yeah, maybe you can climb out or something. Oh, I do clunk. <laughs> it's pretty loud, man. Um, I meant to tell you about that. So close it softer. You know what's really fun is when this happened. It's happened with you. It's happened with Rory also. And I've been the recipient and deliverer of this when you're shouting to someone. Like, let's say I'm going to shout, hey, thanks, JP. And I have the, the voice <laughs> come on, and I'm actually <laughs> shouting in, in your ear. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you don't think about it. Dude, we had conversations away from each other, DQ and me, Zach Boyd and him. And people are talking to us, and we can hear the other people. And we're talking to them. We hear It was... Yeah, well, that was a cluster. They're fun. Yeah. I still think it's fun. Um, do those spirals. Another reason to do these wicked turns is not to only feel, know what it feels like to get G'd up, but, man, people have induced a turn. G'd up, hose G'd down. G'd up, mm. flow up. Uh, <laughs> you want to know how hard you can turn your canopy without inducing line twists, and every canopy has a different tolerance there. And there was a fatality of somebody who induced line twist, and now they didn't get out of it in time. So make sure you know how hard, how fast your can can turn. Know its limitations. One of the things, what, what, what is the most neglected flight mode we have under canopy? Brakes. Slow flight. Yeah. We never fly in brakes. What's the most important time you own a canopy? Brakes. When you're flying slow to land. Man, every time I flare, I catch a crosswind. It makes me turn into the ground. It's that mystery gust. The wind uh, to your side doesn't make you turn. It makes you drift. That turn is you flying because you're not comfortable flying down there. Do a lot of brake flight, man. How important is slow flight speed in the tunnel, Nicholas? That's where all the best flyers develop their skills is at the, at the slowest speed because it causes you to be as efficient as possible. Man, some of the best canopy pilots I know 
spent extra time on larger, slower canopies, really getting to understand the physics and the dynamics of wings and how they fly. Because it doesn't translate from wing to wing, but the knowledge and understanding of how that wing works translates from wing to wing. Learning to fly slow works the same under canopy as it does in free fall. So, I mean, fly, fly your canopy, fly your ass off. Um, whoa, I lost something. The last topic, uh, and really sorry we're cutting a little quick because we've overrun some things, is EPs. EPs, emergency procedures, know your business. It has turned into one of the largest killers. Number one, what's your decision altitude? Do you know your decision altitude? Justin, what's your decision altitude? Oh, you caught me off guard. Uh, I'm trying to remember. 2,100 feet. JP, what's your decision altitude? Uh, what am I deciding? Uh, malfunction decision. Um, it, mine varies depending on on the situation, what kind of canopy I'm jumping and whatnot. Your normal wing, your normal. But I, I would say rate. I would say uh, fifteen hundred feet. Okay, for tandems, it's very different for yeah. me as well. Um, Nick, what's your decision altitude? Uh, Two thousand feet is the number that's hard in my head. I have a, a beep. Uh, my dead tone of my ditter said at eighteen hundred feet. I'm like, hey, asshole. You, you, sh- you, you should have figured this out by but now. Here's the thing: I've never been close to it in any of my my cutaways. Because long before I ever got there, I decided that it wasn't a workable problem. So, first of all, know your decision altitude. Yeah. I'm going to cross that back yeah. right there, um, and that's perfect. Know your decision altitude, and Justin, I love you to death. Should have been able to spit out that answer quicker. Now, I'm positive in a skydiving mindset and in a skydiving zone, you would have been able to go 2,100 feet. Yeah, <laughs> he I'm was trying typing. to set up my OBS right now. Yeah, I saw him <laughs> over there working. He was actually working on a project for for the uh, for safety day. Uh, so sorry about that. Uh, know it and know it well and be able to spit it out, but be committed to it. And when I say committed to it, number one, you can fight all the way down to there, but when you hit that number, you're done. Yeah. But you don't have to fight all the way down to there is what you're saying. I've chopped a high-performance canopy at 4,500 feet because it came out off my back bad, and I knew instantly it wasn't going to be a workable situation, so why waste the time? Nick, how many malfunctions have you had? How many cutaways? Pretty sure it's eight. Eight. Might be seven. How many of them Pretty have sure you written eight. down to your decision altitude? <laughs> Probably zero. Well, no, that's not true. All of them? Th- no. No, for <laughs> me. I'm, I'm putting together. But uh, I, I would tend to side with JP of like, I'm going to figure out before then, generally, especially on a high-performance canopy, that it's not working. That like I mean if it's if if I've got one line twist yeah I'm gonna kick out of one line twist yeah but if I've got you know tension knots and I'm spinning faster than <laughs> you know if I'm starting to see darkness close in on the world and my stupid brain hasn't figured out I need to pull on the other riser to slow me down yeah I'm just gonna fucking yeah I'm not gonna land this thing yeah. see you later mine uh it's only three cutaways so that makes my life a little bit easier. And unfortunately, they're all at my decision altitude. And for me, that's not a good point. That's a bad point. So why have I cut away two? One of them's a tandem. Uh, it was a line over. I was working through the line over. I was trying to get through it. I had plenty of stability and, and, and awareness to be able to ride it to my decision altitude. So that wasn't a big question for me. Uh, the other two were spinning line twists. And why did I take spinning line twists all the way down to my decision altitude is I pulled too low. It wasn't I pulled too low. I pulled on time. I pulled on time for my plan. But my gosh, JP, when we started skydiving, and, and Nick, I don't know if this was true for you. If the BSR say at a D license, you can pull at two grand minimum, 
that isn't what it meant to us. It meant you pulled the two grand, bitch. Yeah. It wasn't a minimum. The BSR says minimum. No, that's how high you pull. Yeah, there there was there was more bravado to it and and more. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna man up and take it right to that limit. And mm-hmm. and clearly that's changed not only in the BSRs but in just people's psychology of it. Uh, part of that is the equipment's changed. You know, w- when we started, there was still uh, we we had good av- gear available to us that had comfortable openings, but it came, we came out of a culture where just a few years before, you know, the standard parachute opening was 300 to 400 foot, foot snivel. You know, now we got parachutes that, that the norm is an 800 to 1,000 foot snivel. Yeah. Was that, was pull altitudes in vogue when you started jumping? Were people pulling low still? Sucking to the basement? Uh, gosh, the the older school, the, the, the belly big way guys, yeah, they were still doing it. But you were at the point where the free flyers started pulling higher. I think the people that were teaching me were, were, were yeah, three five every time, three five every time. Yeah, and I think it, it makes sense. I think that air sounds about right to when I started seeing a shift in my friends and the mentality that I was around. Um, man, pull higher. It, it's it's the cool part that you said, JP and, and Nick. You've said it as well. Is it's now not as big of a problem. We don't have people pulling low, and, and man, it still exists. There's still the old cool, old cool, old school uh, mentality of a flyer who says, "Yo, man, let's pull it two five to get all the free fall time we can get." Do but you now, wa- we, now we also have a surplus of free fall time as compared to the generations we learned from, where a lot of the time they were maxed out at ten or eleven thousand feet. You know, if they were lucky, right? Yeah. So, a we're getting a lot more time. We don't need to be that concerned about it. And b, are you worried about the altitude? Above you or the altitude below you, and that's really an old pilot's adage, right? Yeah. How's that go? Three most wasted things are runway behind you, altitude uh, above you, and fuel you left on the ground. So, uh, just for our friends who don't understand that, explain what that means. Uh, not utilizing the full runway, you know, you've, you've got you've taken got off from half yeah, runway. Yeah, you've got less options. Um, the altitude above you is useless because when the engine quits, you can't use it. You're only going down from there, and then fuel you left on the ground is not in your tanks, ready to supply you when things happen. So now we bring that part of that conversation over to EPs, man. Uh, yeah, I got every bit of that mm. free fall altitude, but gosh, I wish I had a thousand feet of a back right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some friends who have uh, Katrina Autry or Katrina Shows now. We, she's been on the show. She has a, a real large number of cutaways, and it's because she has jumped in that historic category of people who used to pull a lot lower. I think her and her friends have also said, hey, man, what, we don't need to do that anymore. Let's give ourselves time to fight. We cut away less. Well, and, and my, d- my decision, I, I think I'm 32 total, about half tandems and half uh, uh, sport jumps. But my decision on cutting away sometimes has been forced by my, by my altitude. So... I've pulled low, and the canopy is barely twitched into start and spin on itself in a line twist, and I've gotten rid of it before the snivel was done because of my altitude. On the other hand, I've had ones go super bad at at a much higher pull altitude and had time to work the problem. So, Take your time with EPs. Pull higher. Know your altitudes. Know what to do. Under canopy, know your altitudes. Uh, it, it, a, you can induce a malfunction anywhere. Uh, you can induce line twists. We talked about that. But when I'm under canopy, I, I, I know I've said this before, but acknowledge your decision altitude. Acknowledge your no more cutaway altitude. Acknowledge these things when you're under canopy 
So the day you see it in distress, you're you're familiar with it. It's something that you just acknowledge <coughs> and know all the time. Um, EPs, uh, I really want to dive into this conversation. Uh, two handle versus two hands versus one hands. Some people teach put both hands on your cutaway handle, cut away with both hands, and then grab your silver handle and cut away and pull your reserve. By the way, it's what I teach and prefer for a new jumper. Some people teach new jumpers one hand on each handle. I want to look at the pros and cons for any jumper because I know as uh, uh, for me, I'll teach two hands once I see a level of understanding, a level of calmness, I would feel comfortable with a jumper going to single-handed operation, a level of understand uh, knowledge. So um, two hands per handle, I think, for me, is the safest way to teach a student because it's it's designed that way to ensure um, that we don't do it out of sequence. Both hands are occupied doing one thing, then both hands go and are occupied to the other. Uh, that's the way I was trained. However, on my first cutaway, I naturally drifted to what I had seen other people do and I emulate, which was one hand per handle. To me, the key point of one hand per handle, if that's the method you're going to evolve to, is A, that you practice it, B, even though it's two hands and two handles, it's a three-step process. It's a breakaway. Make sure, the, th the second step is make sure that you've broken away. So not, don't just pull the handle. Make sure that you've actually fallen away from that parachute. And then third step is pull that reserve handle. It's not a fire both at once and pray, because uh, if that main stays with you, you're going to have a bad day. The key to that is... I think drilling it, practicing it, and you had mentioned malfunction junction is always cool no matter how much your experience is, and I think that's fantastic, but if anybody ever watches me, not that they get to watch me in the back of the airplane very much anymore, I don't just do it on tandems. I do it on my sport rig where I touch my handles in the order I'm going to use them, which is exactly what I tell an STP or an AFF student as they're going up. I go, touch your handles in the order you're going to use them. Well, I do that myself. Before I exit, I'm going to touch my main, I'm going to touch my breakaway, I'm going to touch my reserve handle, and then I do an added step where I, I imagine that I've lost the use of one hand and I actually cross and practice both those. But that muscle memory is, and the practice of it and the drilling of it in your mind, I think is what makes it seamless and an automatic procedure when you have to use it. A lot of people touch their handles to make sure they're secure, to make sure they're in their pockets, make sure they're accessible, to make sure they know where they're at. And all of those statements are valid and necessary. But how many fatalities over the years have been to improper emergency procedures? I, I'm going to misquote numbers maybe, but somewhere around six to eight last year were impro fatalities were improper I, emergency procedures. I think procedures. that's been the average for, for 30 years. Uh, I think 2.8. Uh, four something is the average over 30 years. Yeah. Point, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I forget the exact numbers. I, I did these earlier today. Uh, but improper emergency procedures is by far one of our bigger killers. There's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you said it. Touch them in order. And visualize the process. Visualize what's occurring. You know, don't just, oh, my handle's there, my handle's there. Visualize, hey, I got to break away, you know. Clint Moore, uh, he... he uh, came up to me one day and thanked me for something. And I'm like, what, dude? He goes, the way you touch your handles. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, bro? He's like, dude, I was up on a fun jump. I had a malfunction. I go to cut away. And I go to cut away. And he just pulls his cutaway handle straight down. And it didn't work. And he pulls it again straight down. It didn't work. 
And he says, as I did this, he actually said, whilst I was doing this, I pictured you in the plane, and you always peel. You make a peeling motion in the plane all the time. Kick the heel of that hand out. Yeah. And he actually admitted, like, in my mind, I've mocked you for that, but whilst I was doing I love that word, whilst. He uh, pictured that, and he goes, yeah, let me peel that up and punch it out. And since then, he's made that part of his practice. I actually grab my handles, then I open my hands, peel, cut away, ensure risers are clear. Nick's probably never seen me touch my handles more in his life than now. Actually, we're back-to-back in the plane a lot. <coughs> we sit opposite I, mean, I, I pay attention to the, to the way that most people do their gear checks. Yeah. Only, uh, I mean, not only, but because it also serves as a good reminder to, hey, do your gear checks, stupid. Yeah. When's the last time you really cut away? And most people's answers are a long time ago or never. And it's and and in what you've been doing lately with the with uh, extraordinary jumps like that with extra equipment extra handles it's even it's even more important you know we we emphasize it when we teach somebody tandems mm-hmm. you know but after a while tandem becomes a standard system for them yes it's twice the handles but you run through that uh, through automatic but you've got you've got such a complex and such a dynamic thing that's different in intentional cutaways I've done a fair number of them uh, on ver on various systems you got a pretty cool picture of one just yeah. <laughs> And uh, and and so so visualizing that and then going through the muscle memory of it is what's gonna keep you safe when things don't go right, right? Absolutely, man. And it, so much so that when Nick and I have done these intentional cutaways, I've always I, I've peeled my handles every cutaway I've had, and it's not been an issue. But when you're chilling, you're laid back, and you're just hanging out with your buddy Nick, and you go to peel your handle just casually, you're like, oh, holy fuck. Like, it caught me off guard, and my training immediately took action and just grabbed it and went through the motions I've gone through time and time again. So e- even doing it intentionally, I caught myself with a little bit of complacency. Excuse me. So it really kind of brings me to the wrap of the day, and sorry we cut some of these short, but we, we turn into pumpkins shortly. Uh, the wrap of the day is back to the fatality statistics. The majority of fatalities every year happen to what license holder? A, B, C, D, or student? D. D. By far, man. On average, I'm just going to really round these numbers. It's about two per class. Uh, A license, B license, Mm. C license. About two jumpers a year on average is a a fatality. Uh, D licenses, it's something like 6 or 7%. We had, uh, I, I forget what it is. It's really, it's a lot higher. Uh, that or 13, uh, not percent numbers, 13 uh, people. So really, and I think 13 people is the uh, actual percentage, the average over the last 20 years for is D license holders. So complacency, man. Safety day is not for the new jumper. It is for the new jumper, by the way, man. But when I'm on a drop zone and I'm standing there and I'm worried about safety-mindedness, the guy with 100 jumps uh, might be an arrogant prick, but chances are he's really cool and he's really nice. And chances are he's actually much safer than my friend with 600 skydives. Because he's still f- relative, he's that much closer to the safety culture he came out of, the program he came out of. So that's those those recency, primacy and recency uh, uh, habits are still in place. A, the knowledge is current, and B, the attitude is current. Yeah. When you are an experienced jumper, the the attitude is no longer current because you haven't been in that training environment. And are you really current on doing these things? Safety day is for everybody. Please come check it out. Right in front of you is a ProTrack 2 and a Viso 2. Do you know what those are for? Um, Not you. No. But they're in front of the, you. Uh, uh, those are for safety day, man. We're going to have a gear inspection station at Spaceland Houston. Uh, you might be listening to this after safety day, but if you're listening to it before, know that if you uh, go check out some of that gear, you have a chance at winning a Viso 2 Plus. 
Uh, we also have a protract too. We are going to have a. I call it the safety day inquisition. It's the test at the end of the day. No one expects the safety day inquisition. <laughs> I love the name of, and it's like three questions per topic, uh, all open like uh, question like, hey, what's the percentage of this or what's that? Some of the questions are super silly. Some of the questions are super serious. And then the best score wins in the event of a tie. The best score goes into a quick random way to like, we'll make up a fun way for people to do rock, paper, scissors or something to win that device. So uh, make sure you make it to safety day and check it out. I forgot. I forgot there was a, there was a whole feed. Is anybody even asking yeah. anything cool or are they just talking about my mustache? Um, two minute call. I'm leaving in two minutes. You guys say whatever <laughs> else you want. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few different things. One one thing, uh, uh, Jared Shell actually brought up that JP probably saved my life watching out for my safety. Aw, man, you remember Jared? And he'll put yeah. five dollars in on your uh, pilot rig. <laughs> cool, <laughs> guys and gals. Uh, we do have safety day coming up. If you are not wa- uh, going to be able to attend safety day at your drop zone, uh, you really should. It's the best way to do it. Check out the Rating Center fan page. We will have Safety Day stream live on there. Uh, we do have our karaoke and fight night coming up. We are accepting donations for the DJ. Please hit us up. Please let us know uh, that we do not make a lot of money, any money off of this podcast. I spend more money than anything else, so uh, please, we'll take donations. <coughs> JP, anything else you want to share with the people out there? No. Nope. See you on Safety Day. I'm doing two of them this year. i got to go to Orange the following weekend and do one there. Actually, man, dude, half our safety day staff is here because you were doing uh, aircraft safety. Yep. Nick, you're doing camera safety. I'm doing uh, fatality report and canopy safety. And Justin is running all the technical details. Of the this. guy in the chair. He is the guy in the chair, the gynecologist. Who's covering uh, beer rules? Beer rules. Uh, not me. Uh, Steph, should, we should have Steph up there for beer oh, rules. Yeah, yeah, that would be really <laughs> easy. Uh, guys and gals, make sure you make it to safety day. Uh, anything you got to say, Justin? Nope. Oh, yeah. Uh, like and follow the rating center because we will be streaming the safety day uh, videos. Yeah, keep talking. Put Justin on the spot. Yeah, right. Be entertaining. <laughs> As I'm trying to cue up the outro music. Hey, Justin, can you talk? Um, <laughs> yeah, I will be um, be running the safety day stream uh, just like we did before. I'm assuming we'll do it on the rating center website Duh. or um, Facebook group. And uh, those will be saved up there. They're actually, I think they're still up there from the last That was cool last year for people who couldn't uh, attend. We actually make a playlist on the Rating Center fan page. You can see 2018 Safety Day. Actually, we encouraged all our presenters to watch the seminars from last year so they could uh, kind that of That doesn't mean you should do. stay home. You should come see us. Dude, yeah. you can win free shit there. Nick, you're going to turn into a pumpkin. You got anything? Yeah, I'm sick. I want to go home. Cool, see you guys. <laughs> Hit the music, white boy. We're getting the fuck out of here. Blue Skies, this is Gravity Lab Radio. We're out! Leave my home sick. Sick Nick. Sick Nick.